Throughout history, free thinkers have outraged the religious with their wacky ideas about the virtues of free speech, reason, and of course, eating babies. Now, God is dying, and it's time to dispose of his remains. From the pits of hell, Satan sends two puppets of the imperialist West and the Zionist Jews against God, Islam, and tiny kittens to bring you their propaganda and conspire for a new world order. This is Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment with Ali Rizwi and Armin Navabi. Welcome, everybody, to yet another episode of Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment. My name is Ali Rizvi, and with me is Armin Navabi. Armin, how are you? Not bad. Welcome back. That's good. I'm just going to run through this really quick because we have a lot to get to. And uh, it's a, this, is a, this is actually a fascinating topic. I've been looking forward to this for a while. So uh, today, um, we're going to be talking about Muhammad, Muhammad, the prophet, uh, uh, the alleged prophet, who uh, over a billion people believe is a messenger of God around the world, a billion Muslims believe. So we, there are many things we know about him, but there are, what's really interesting about him is what we don't know. And that's what we're going to be uh, focusing on in the beginning part of this episode. So just a few things really quickly. Uh, the earliest surviving biography of Muhammad by Ibn Hisham is from, uh, was, was written 200 years after his death. And that biography was an edited version of a previous biography by Ibn Ishaq. Uh, which did not survive to the present day, except in just fragments here and there. But that itself was written over a hundred years after Muhammad's death. Mm. And everything that we know about Muhammad today, all of the stories, the meditation, the cave of Hera, almost his marriages, everything. all of that, almost everything is from those biographies. And, Every, you know, almost about, everything we think we know because we don't know. We if think we, yeah. we don't know because it was such a vacuum of at least a century before mm -hmm. any of this uh, stuff actually came out in writing. Then uh, the first time his name ever appeared on any official state document was on a coin at around 690, over 50 years after he died. Uh, and before that, between his death and that time when his name appears on the coin, there's no mention of him in any other state documents prior to this including any of the documents from the Umayyad Caliphate, which is pretty amazing. Um, but then people talk about the Hadith as a way to get to him. All six of the Hadith compilations started at least 200 years after Hijri, two centuries afterwards. That's when they were compiled, and they were based on oral tra traditions passed from generation to generation. Uh, even the Shia sources... Right? They weren't compiled until centuries later. The Najjal Balagha, which was a collection of Ali's sermons, was compiled about 300 years after Ali's death by Sharif Razi. So the thing is, Muhammad, almost most scholars and historians agree that he almost surely existed. But the only really reliable indicator of history from his lifetime is the Quran. Uh, which only mentions him four times and really talks about more philosophical things and contemporary events at the time. And it's pretty cryptic about this whole period in history. So what happened between the 7th and 9th century, uh, we don't really know. We have a lot of documentation for what's happened before and what happened after. But during this time, it's as good as a vacuum. Can, so, can, can we do the, some really, really basic stuff, though? Like Islam 101 cover some, like, so just a quick Yeah, yeah we're going to get to that. Okay, no, just, yeah, a, yeah. just a quick one-minute run-through, uh, you know, Muslims don't see Muhammad as divine or anything other than human. He's just a messenger of God. 
um, he's the last messenger of God, the perfect messenger of God. He, he, yeah. all, they also believe in the other uh, prophets before him. He just came and completed everything and he's the best, uh, best of them. And he basically brought them, uh, the complete he's, religion. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, he's, he's called and, the seal of the prophet. Now yeah. they do see him as, uh, it's not that they don't, they do see him as God appointed. He's divine in that sense. Yeah. But he's but not that, divine. That, Jesus, yeah. like the Son of God. The right? source of divinity yeah. is is God. Like there's nothing from Muhammad that comes that makes him divine, divine in any way, right? So he's yeah. connected so, to divinity, but there's no way that he's divine at, himself at all. But he is, which is philosophically could be contradictory sometimes. Like that's debate of its own. But he's the perfect man. He's the perfect role model. Uh, Example he is, of all he, the, If if you all could time. see a, if you could look at the Quran as a guidebook. You could see uh, Muhammad as a, as an example of what it would look like if you follow that guidebook perfectly, right? So that's right. why that you have the Quran and the Sunnah. The Sunnah is the way of the way the what Muhammad saying and his way of life, and the Quran and the Sunnah together completes Islam. <laughs> anyway, right, so that was so. the one one. Um, so yeah so so with that we want to bring on our guests and uh, if you haven't heard the first part of this we had a conversation earlier uh with abdullah i think you're you're the first repeat guest that we've ever had on the podcast so so <laughs> welcome back abdullah gondal's with us uh we had a great episode on the quran um before right. uh on that quranic awesome. criticism yeah so um do check that out if you want uh, a sort of a prelude to this but this time we're going to be talking about muhammad and the biography so so abdullah just start with um, you know, what do we know? Like we, we have the Quran. That's the only text from his time. Everything else came from hundreds of years after he died. Mm. Uh, what do we know and what we don't, or what do we not know? Again, the Quran itself that we have, the carbon dating shows that it could even predate Muhammad. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's one theory that goes, yeah, the carbon dating goes as this far came as out last year. 580 yeah, right. or something okay well yeah, yeah. Okay. this is you have to you have to explain how significant this is like this is not just a small thing to claim right yeah so mm -hmm. when you look at the quran you also notice that the quran has a lot of non-arabic words and non like syriac or aramaic from the surrounding areas uh, these languages were commonly spoken by christians living in the surrounding areas of Arabia. Now, some people do say that most of the Quran was already written down in parchments before Muhammad. And what happened was he used or got a hold of one of his manuscripts, and this was an exegesis to the Bible for the Arab Christians. And then he added and subtracted as he went along. This is one theory. Although I don't believe it's, it's very strong because the carbon dating also puts it in a time frame that could predate Muhammad, but most probably was during his lifetime. Yeah, that's that's what I'd read actually. That even though they had given a range of five hundred eighty to six hundred forty-five, I think if I'm remembering correctly, uh, they're saying it's still most likely to be contemporaneous, as as in the Quran came around the time that Muhammad was. So, a lot of historians like uh, tend to think that he he did write a lot of it's it's easily it's plausible that he wrote a, not wrote most of the Quran. like told other people to write yeah as in as in recited right. uh, all because of, because let's say, another uh, islam yeah. one-on-one i know a lot of most of our patrons know this uh but for people that are listening to this later uh it, it is claimed that muhammad couldn't read or write so basically he would l hear the messages of god and he will tell 
Ali, Abu Bakr, or other people to just write it down. And to Muslims, that's a miracle. I don't know how that's a miracle because he, since he didn't write it, so, so they say, if somebody, how could somebody that could not read or write bring the Quran? And well, the answer is in the story. He didn't write it. Other, other people wrote it for him. That, how is that a miracle? I never understood that part. But go the uh, so just mm -hmm. to quickly touch upon the Quran thing, uh, the era he was living in, uh, literacy was not a common or a necessary skill. Uh, yeah. You could be well off, be a good merchant trader, leave, lead a good life by knowing how to speak and communicate, just uh, spoken. Muhammad was also a tradesman. So he was traveling around. He was hearing stories, going to Syria, to Jordan, to the Byzantine Empire. And it's not astonishing to see him come up with these verses, especially when you look at some of the verses that how they compare to the soothsayers of the time. Uh, and it, it has no miracle in it per se, because some parts of the Quran are beautiful, but there are other parts that are really not so eloquent and mm -hmm. actually do contain grammatical errors. And you can even find those errors between different versions or transmissions of the Quran. So uh, since we have a lot to cover today, just on the thing about Mecca, Mecca itself is told by Muslims to be a central uh, spot of Arabia. It's like the house of the biggest uh, biggest pilgrimage. And the funny thing is Mecca isn't mentioned by any contemporary sources around at that time. Like what about the Byzantine of the Greeks, Romans, people surrounding the Arabian Peninsula? They don't mention this famous city at all. Another interesting thing you note is all the earliest mosques of Islam, when you go on Google Maps and you draw a line where they're pointing, they're supposed to point at Mecca, but they all end up pointing and intersect at a point uh, in Petra, in Jordan. Jordan. So that's uh, interesting. Yeah. Or, I mean, even people who don't say that it's actually Petra, I think there's a, a, a there's a consensus among several scholars that they do point to the Negev Desert in southern Jordan. I think so, even if it isn't exactly Petra. So, I'm kind yeah. of trying to think about the people that don't know. The, um, I, I want to fill in the 101 here because a lot of people might be like, "Okay, so what? What does that mean?" Um, so, just to understand, the, every every almost every Muslim out there, um, I um, under, the understanding is that uh, Muslims used to pray towards Jerusalem. Uh, and then Muhammad at some point changed his mind. Well, God told him to, no, he didn't change his mind. God basically told him to, nope, now start praying towards Kaaba. And Kaaba became the, where, the where Kaaba was in Mecca. Kaaba yeah. was in Mecca, which is where every Muslim is supposed to pray to. But this is, uh, the weird thing is that the earliest mosques, uh, that we have found don't point the prayer direction, do not point towards Kaaba, they point to completely something different. Uh, which is in Jordan, in Petra, uh, which kind of suggests that maybe the earlier story, earlier version of Islam, uh, there was no such thing as Mecca, there was no such thing as Kaaba inside Mecca, and it was in a di completely different story, and the stories were later on changed for some political reason. Is that accurate to say? Is, is that? Yeah, it could be. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Moving on to uh, one other thing that well, Ali brought up was uh, we barely know anything about Muhammad before he claimed prophethood. Everything we know is what Muhammad told us about himself through and the little fragments we know like, oh, this happened when he was five. Then the next jump is when he was 12 and the next jump is when he's 25 getting married. 
So these are gaps in his life story that exist, and we we don't know anything about it. There's uh, there's no Muslim literature. There's no uh, contemporary literature from other sources either way. Yeah, uh, and even even this information is again the earliest time we actually got it was at least a century after Muhammad's death. So so we didn't exactly. we didn't even hear it from Muhammad. We heard it from people 100 years after Muhammad's death saying mm-hmm. that Muhammad said this about his childhood. Yeah, and mm-hmm. g- given that what we know mostly about, 200 years after, but mostly 200. Um, years. To be yeah, to be optimistic, like at least a hundred years, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we, with way, that aside, we have a lot yeah, of patron, we have a lot of patron questions. We'll get to them. So keep posting yeah. those questions. We're not ignoring them, but go on. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So with that aside, let's delve into his youth. So Muhammad's dad died before he was born. He never got to see his father. Abdullah. Then, yeah. Mm-hmm. Then when he is born, he sent outside of the city by his mom uh, um, with a wet nurse. And it was tradition where um, kids yeah. would live for, yeah. yeah, kids would live outside with a, in the countryside to learn the language better and get to know the norms, how to live in the desert. Uh, one incident that happened, which was significant, was uh, when he was with this wet nurse, he was playing with his friends. And then he says that two men came to him in white robes, cut open his belly, took his heart out, and then washed it in a uh, bowl of zamzam water or snow, and then they put it back and uh, they sealed them up. Uh, now, the kids that are playing around him, nobody testifies that anything like this happened. And in fact, in, in Ibn Hisham's uh, Sira, the first reaction the husband of the wet nurse has, he says he has a stroke and his color was changed. They quickly take him back to his mom. And then the mom is asking, why did you bring him back? Was everything okay? So after she insisted a few times, the wet nurse says that, hey, I fear he's possessed by a demon. This is their first reaction. This is happening when he's like four or five years old. Okay. Now, okay, the Christians, while, the Christians are going to love this because a lot of Christians <laughs> say that Muhammad is possessed by a demon. But go ahead. <laughs> so after a while, this kid is about six years old. And he has barely spent time with his mom, and then his mom passes away while they're traveling near Yatsrib, like which ended up being named as Medina. So now this kid was fortunately traveling with a slave girl of theirs, and so the, they buried the mom, and Muhammad was there. So he grew up as an orphan in a society that was not friendly to orphans, mm. and. Have you ever wondered why the Quran talks about orphans so much? Like it, it doesn't touch on many, many important topics like how to perform prayer, how many prayers, how to perform hajj and obligatory, things like that. Right. But it touches and it dedicates a lot of verses to orphans. It's Muhammad's mentality reflecting on, his, uh, on the book because he suffered as an orphan. Uh, the only things we know about this phase of his life is that he was uh, living with this person to this person like his uncles some of them passed so he was transferred to another uncle's guardianship so on and uh, he lived with his grandfather for a little while i think abdul yeah right so yeah exactly so do you think that these kind of stories that you're mentioning suggest that this the hadith and the sunnah and all of this there must be some truth to them because it kind of, like it kind of makes sense. A person that was an orphan seems to have a lot of messages about treating orphans nicely. Like this doesn't seem like, unless the people who wrote it were very good at building characters in a story, which I don't think they were. 
uh, it seems like it kind of suggests that these stories are based on a, at least some of them are based on real events. What do you think? Well, they have to be. Like, mm-hmm. there's yeah. got to be some, um, right. some, some. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like they're completely false. Right. It's just that uh, how reliable are they? via but for being passed down via oral tradition right right mm-hmm. i think that's the because in that age like you can suppose say that when muhammad was born he might have had the stroke incident but on that same page the explanation comes from his mom saying that when she gave birth to him a light came out of a boom that shone on the castles of syria so mm-hmm. you can quickly tell which parts are real which parts are fabricated to make him look like a prophetic figure the light that was carried by the father and it, there was another woman that wanted to have sex with the father the day that on the day of his wedding like Abdullah, somebody, a woman offered herself to Abdullah, but he said no. And then when he had uh, sex with Amina, then the woman noticed that the light was missing now. So he didn't want her. So the light came from Abdullah to Amina, passed on to Muhammad. That's what yeah, I, I remember <laughs> reading this too. Yeah. yeah okay. That's interesting. I did not know that detail. That's interesting. Mm. Anyways, so what happens is Muhammad's living as an orphan in a society that doesn't like orphans. And... He ends up becoming mostly a shepherd for most of his life and then eventually a tradesman. And what he does is he goes with caravans as a trader and then he sells goods and comes back, takes what the profit he gets, his cut of it and gives the rest to the owner of the caravan. Uh, now, what's interesting is his, for his first marriage. Now, he was 25 and he got married to a two times widowed 40-year-old lady who had inherited her ex-husband's business and already had multiple kids. She basically employed Muhammad and Khadija, the first first wife and first Muslim. And uh, a slave accompanied Muhammad and he had good things to say about him being, uh, in the sense he wasn't cheating people, he was fair about it how he sold the goods and stuff. So she was impressed and she's 40 and she's like, okay, I'll send him a So just to, just to clarify what you said, <clears throat> Khadija had a slave, which she sent out with Muhammad to do trades. And that slave reported to Khadija that this guy is really good. So yeah, yeah go ahead. So Khadija then uh, proposed to Muhammad. Now, one thing to note here is Khadija throughout their marriage was the person who was financially supporting Muhammad. She was literally his boss. She was the one with the money. <clears throat> and another thing is, have you ever noticed a lot of Muslims say that back in that era, people got married really young and they used this argument to defend the prophet's marriage to Aisha, who was six. Uh, one then asked, well, if it was so common to get married so early, why did Muhammad wait till the age of 25 to get married? Mm-hmm. Also. In the same hadith, you see these, these, these narrations about Muhammad's skin tone being bright and his face was as beautiful as the moon and he was this and that. And like he's shown as like a... He's a hunk. He's a hottie. Yeah. But he was rejected. It, exactly. So why was he... Why did he marry at such a late age? And you come to the idea that firstly he was an orphan. Nobody wanted to marry him. He didn't have a lot of money and he was a shepherd. So... Anyways, uh, when we go on, fast forward a few years, Muhammad starts secluding himself in caves and he becomes very philosophical. And then he starts... Just to put, sorry, just to put things in perspective, this is before his prophethood. 
This is yeah, went, this is just yeah. before. Yeah. So we now we're now we went from him um, being a shepherd to now being hired by Khadija. He's a tradesman now. Now married Khadija. Married Khadija. And, and I now, just want to just for the yeah. the the people out there who talk about how there are a lot of Muslim apologists who talk about Muhammad being the first feminist, and this is one of the reasons given. Given, and it's actually quite remarkable too. It's interesting. I mean, he his first marriage. He's twenty five years old. He marries a woman who is twice widowed, and she's not a virgin. Um, she is uh, 15 years older than him, right? She is his boss. She financially supports him. She proposed to him, right? She was, uh, so it, the whole thing was in reverse. And this is very unusual for that time. Um, almost, it's like a matriarchal kind of thing. Um, exactly. And the way that his he, first marriage started out. He contradicts this whole idea with the, the later laws. He comes up in the Medina phase of his life with, with the regards to women, that women can't do this, women can't do that, women can't assume authority over men, and right. yada, yada, yada. Yeah, yeah, because so his later kinda, wives were, yeah. And yeah. This, this is actually, a, like, a lot of Muslims say before Muhammad, women couldn't own property. And then I always say, well, what about Khadija? She, she owned shitload of property. How does that work? Like, <laughs> what would you say there? Uh, yeah, is, that, is that a contradiction? There's, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of uh, let's just say mind uh, and mental gymnastics that go into this apologi- these apologetics because uh, they're cherry picking and they don't realize that we have a lot of pre Arab pre Muhammad history. Yeah, mm-hmm. and women weren't as bad as they were portrayed to be in in, in the Muslim literatures. So this idea part- of uh, burying alive every boor, every daughter was is that like is there any evidence for that 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 was the case? It 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 did happen, but it didn't happen to the frequency Muslims make make us seem that it did. Because if it was the case, well, where were all these women coming from that they had? <laughs> right. but, like. Exactly right. Like, right. well, the, the idol gods that they worshipped, the Allah Manatanuza, were all women. They're all females, yeah. and that was actually denounced in in Islam. That you know they used to worship uh, women, and they said that the angels were female, and you know, all this other stuff. And, but, and, and just to be clear, women were before Muhammad. Women were treated better in Medina than in Mecca. Is that accurate? Uh, Yes, uh, there were there actually narrations, uh, authentic narration, the Hadith books where women in Medina say that we were better off before Muhammad. And there's Aisha saying that I have never seen anybody worse, being treated worse than a believing woman. And then, I mean, Muhammad's own wordings, calling women like captives and animals with you and stuff like that later on in his last sermon is also quite problematic. Mm-hmm. So, right. anyways, yeah, yeah, let's keep let's go. Let's sorry, go on. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. We were at the point where it was just before uh, before his prophethood, and there is a plethora of evidence, or at least numerous places recorded this, uh, from Ibn Kasir to Tabari to Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Isham, Sahih Muslim. They all record that Muhammad used to hear stones and trees talk to him while he was alone in the outskirts of the city. And he said that I still remember one of the stones saying, peace be upon you before I became a prophet. Now this issue continued all the way up till uh, the first revelation where Muhammad is sitting in isolation for an extended period of time with little or no food. And then he sees an apparition appear to him trying to strangle him to death saying that read in the name of the Lord. And he says he can't read. And it happens three times. 
Eventually, Muhammad feels he's going to die, so he repeats the words. Muhammad then runs out of the cave, disoriented, looks up at the sky, sees an angel sitting on a chair covering the horizon with 600 wings, and wherever he looks, this angel is there. And then he starts seeing a green screen covering the whole horizon. He's scared. He can barely breathe. His muscles are twitching. He the goes green running screen? to his... Wait, yeah, this is, okay. this is the wording in the hadith. I don't know what they meant by it, but that's what it's. It, it, Islam had that way before Hollywood. <laughs> Wait, I'll let you know. Green screens, yeah, yeah. So but anyway, go ahead. Okay. So, anyways, he gets to his wife. He's terrified. Gets under a blanket and is shivering. Oh wait, you missed a, you missed something. Didn't he try to commit suicide? When that was after. Wasn't it right at the at the cave that he oh, tried no, to jump? I thought it was up? right after. Yeah, but that that the suicide attempt is only do, uh, documented by Ibn Ishaq. Ibn Hisham actually took that out of his edited version okay. because yeah. he thought it was too sacrilegious. But yeah, but it, that actually happened. You know, when you said he came and he saw the the angel with the six hundred wings, and that was according to Ibn Ishaq, that was like uh, that's something that happened when he was on top of a cliff, about to throw himself off, and then he saw the apparition appear again. Yeah, yeah, because I, he thought he was going crazy and he didn't want to be one of those crazy poets. So like, uh, and he's like, okay, this is it. I'm done. But then he saw the angel and we're like, okay, maybe there's something to this. But go on. Yeah. And the angel reaffirmed that he was yeah. the message of God. Yeah. This is also in uh, Sahih Bukhari and I think two places. And the story is slightly different in the sense that there the angel doesn't physically appear. He says he heard a voice in his head saying that... Hmm. Uh, you are the prophet of God and I am Gabriel and thus he didn't commit suicide. But all of them did mention that he was being squeezed or something. Like it did like, yeah. yeah Tightening of tight, the test. Yeah, yeah, he was, like he, he was, something was squeezing him and he was like, he was suffocating. And all right, go ahead. Yeah. Also like uh, a continued isolation is a very well documented known thing to make people paranoid and hallucinate. You can, there's a reason why solitary confinement, confinement is yeah. a punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyways, so what happened was he would get revelation for about a month and then he'd stop for a few months and then there are gaps for years or so. And eventually he started preaching to the Meccans. Meccans initially just let him be because when he started, he was, he was more of a pacifist. Wait, he was talking did, about that. Did you miss the part where Khadija told him, like, you're, you are the prophet of God? I believe, he, she became the first Muslim? Yeah, uh, she, be, she convinced she convinced him that he was a prophet of God, and she took him to her cousin Waraka bin Nofal, who was a polytheist but had converted to Christianity and had read the Bible. And then he reaffirmed Muhammad that yes, you are indeed the prophet. She, You're not she, crazy. Uh-huh. Yeah, she and and Waraka, okay. and then Waraka mysteriously dies a few days later, and no reason is given as to how or why. Okay. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. So, initially, when Muhammad starts preaching, he's he he's more pacifist in the sense that he's just talking about the hellfire or the life after death. He isn't making laws up or going beheading people. He's just preaching and doing his thing. So the Meccans let him be for a while. And that was normal, like, like a crazy person talk going around talking about God, like God stuff. That was like meh, another person, like like it wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah, okay. And then slowly and slowly he started gathering more support and then bigger names like Omar and Abu Bakr and Uthman and the wealthy people started converting and then a bunch of slaves were. So they gave him an option like, Muhammad, you're disturbing the social fabric of our society. You're insulting our gods. How about we give you money, wealth, and women and you stop? 
Well, how did you, okay? How is that possible though? Like, how? What does like we had crazy poets going around and saying shit all around the the place, right? According to the stories, I don't know if it's true. But what? Why did Muhammad become all of a sudden get the uh, attention of these people that were so so important, right? Like Omar. Yeah, Abu- I I don't think it was a it was as much of a, a crazy poet thing as is because he had a very good reputation. So he was yeah, one of those I guys mean, who was, was almost. I mean, that was always was considered yeah, always so, the yeah. honest person. Right. So. Exactly. So what he was doing was, I mean, I if you look at a lot of even contemporary sort of recent historical figures like like Gandhi or like and anyway, you know, these are people who start out very idealistic and then they talk about treating people well and feeding the orphans and, and, right. and you know things like that. But then what happens is that later on, when their stuff gets political and they start having political influence, mm-hmm. then people start freaking out. So I don't, I don't think it was necessarily that people saw him as a crazy person. No, I think no, that they. I, just, my question yeah. is like, what? How was he different from the random homeless person that was talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the difference yeah. was that he did have a good reputation in the society as somebody yeah. that you could. Tr- okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, a very interesting incident happened is when the Meccans said, you know, we'll give you money, wells, anything you need. He said, I won't stop. I have to finish my mission. This tells us that Muhammad was very sincere in his own belief that he is a prophet of God. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening was he noticed that people of Mecca aren't really receptive. So, he tried another town that was. Uh, that was called Taif. This was very and close. Was, this was very close by, right? Yeah, it was pretty close by. So he goes there. Now, the the literature doesn't give us the details, but apparently he went and talked to the chiefs of chief of the town, and it ends up being that Muhammad is chased by a bunch of kids and a bunch of people throwing stones at him, and he's bleeding. And then his uh, adopted son is trying to protect him till they get out to to safety. Now, it is very weird for Arab people at that time to start pelting stones at a guest because they mm. would start wars on the slightest of issues. So something might have happened that triggered a really, really bad reaction. And that part, what happened, is missing. But Wait, can, they would st- start wars on the slightest of issue. You mean they would start wars on slight um, disrespect of a guest or something? So... The tradition of Arabs is that guests should always be treated very, very well. And they will hospitality. Hospitality. And if they will start wars on (laughs) like the story, I think this is obviously a fake story, but that two tribes went to war with each other because somebody went and took some edible bugs from someone's tent on top of someone's tent to and you know, cut their heads off and the person from the tent came in out and like killed him because he said these bugs were on my tent. So they were my guests. (laughs) So, and he killed them. And then the two tribes started war with each other because he killed. So they say like respect, like not just respecting guests, protecting your guests. Like if somebody is a guest in your home, you will, you will sacrifice your life to protect them. So the fact that Muhammad was a guest at the city and they treated him like this goes against the tradition at the time. Right, go ahead. Especially keeping in mind that Muhammad is said to be a respected man from a respected tribe, made to a respectable woman, according to the Muslims themselves. So it's very weird to react that way. Moving on, this incident has a very funny twist at the end. So Muhammad is, feels rejected by the Meccan people. 
Then he goes to Taif, another town. He gets rejected by those people. And he's feeling very, very low self-esteem, feeling very rejected and humiliated. Guess what chapter of the Quran suddenly gets revealed? Surah Jinn. The chapter of the Jinn. And that's what happens. This guy cannot be accepted by anybody. Then he says, oh, Jinn's at least the Jinn. Muslim. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, he's like, no, no human will listen to me. Well, Maybe sorry, demons sorry, can you? Imaginary recruits. All right, go on. <laughs> so, so Muhammad. Was this called been, Abin Nas? That, that one? No, or? no that's... It's a Surah Jinnah chapter 72. It's about the smokeless being. <laughs> this is genius. So, and what so, does the chapter say? How does it um, sort of fit the context of the situation? So, Can you explain this, that. Yeah. So the, con- the whole gist of the chapter is that Muhammad is reciting the Quran in the middle of nowhere. And then these jinns, these fiery beings who are invisible to humans, come and hear Muhammad is citing the Quran and they're so mesmerized by it that they become Muslims. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, how it fits in is Muhammad feels rejected by the Meccans. Muhammad goes to another town. That town rejects him and stones him and Muhammad is feeling humiliated. And guess how to make himself feel better? Well, if, if humans won't accept him, the jinns at least did. <laughs> it, it's 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 a, it's a subconscious way of uh, elevating his his own self esteem. Did, did you come up with this, uh, you know, hypothesis, or is that is is this some, something people? Um, it's, have it's in the literature itself, uh, in the Sira as well. It uh, it tells you when and how this no, chapter no, I, was revealed. No, no, yeah. this, we know that, but the f- the 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 hypothesis that Muhammad is just tra- is just coming up since he's not getting the number of people followers he wants, he just makes up you know, demon followers, but for himself, <laughs> um, is that, is that your theory? Like, or, uh, yeah, that's our speculation. Like, we're just I know, but it's a very good, I mean, it's a very good, it's a very interesting one, right? I'm just yeah. saying, is that because, is that your speculation? Like, have you heard that anywhere else before? Because that's my original. I once heard uh, Hamid Abdul Samad say it okay. on his uh, series, the Arabic series, uh, Box of Islam. Really, really good to watch. Uh, oh, yeah. He's amazing. Hamid Abdul Samad. Can I just do a really quick Islam 101? So, in Islam, I'm, I'm calling it demon because it's the closest English thing you could come up with, but it's not technically, it's a different. So, in Islam, there's three diff- different types of conscious beings humans, uh, well, other than God. Humans, angels, and jinns. Um, uh, humans are made out of d- uh, dust. Uh, angels are made out of light. And uh, jinns are made out of fire, a smokeless fire. Um, and from these three conscious beings, only two of them have free will, which is humans and jinns. Uh, angels just fo- follow God's command. Uh, they're like, kind of like slaves. But uh, anyways, so go on. So uh, just to uh, fast forward is within the next few years, you know, Muhammad's people start getting tortured uh, because Muhammad isn't stopping his his preaching. And he's also getting very aggressive as time goes on, even in the Meccan period. Uh, he's giving more threats and he's directly attacking the gods of the Meccans, which is really angering them. And then, you know, it's basically the blasphemy well, of Meccan blasphemy. style. Yeah. yeah, it's blasphemy against the crazy. He was the original <laughs> blasphemer. We're yeah, exactly. all following his example. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so so anti black. Uh, so so free speech would have been great for Muhammad at this time, right? So <laughs> oh yeah, right. Yeah. 
So, so in, in that time frame, what happened was uh, a lot of his followers, uh, at least the weaker ones, and the slaves started getting tortured. Then Muhammad's whole tribe that uh, he was with, his uncle's tribe, got uh, exiled to a valley outside of Mecca and they didn't have food. Wait, and stuff did, didn't, you, so that, didn't you want to bring up the satanic verses? Just after this. Okay, okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and then his wife also passed away shortly after. Now, when the torture became too much, the incident of the satanic verses happened and the, the literature itself, the Ibn Isaac, Sira, itself say that the prophet longed for some uh, some comfort for his followers so he went to the the kaaba and the chiefs were sitting there and then he started reciting surah 53 of the quran and at the last there were these verses talking about the four gods of the pagans and then he mentioned the gods in a good light and said that their intercession is also acceptable and they're the high flying cranes and then the Meccans rejoiced, said, hey, Muhammad has acknowledged our gods and he agrees with us. And they all fell in prostration alongside with him. And then uh, allegedly the Muslims who had migrated to Abyssinia to escape torture tried to come back. Uh, Abyssinia is modern day Ethiopia. Yeah. yeah. But we'll skip that part for a bit. Just We'll just tell that they, they left Mecca just to avoid uh, torture. Uh, but now anyways, they're coming back because apparently Muhammad's, Muhammad is basically changing his message so that they, they tolerate him. Uh, he's like, hey, our gods and your gods are fine too, right? Um, and the Meccans were like, oh, great. Now we can get along, which is actually pretty tolerant of them. Like they were like for that, for that time, they were like, you can have your religion. Just don't shit on our religion. Like let our gods be as well. Right. And then, and then when Muhammad said, okay, your gods are great too. They showed some goodwill by go coming and praying with him to Muhammad's God. Uh, they're like, okay, so now that you're accepting our gods, we're going to pray to your gods. And mm -hmm. Muslims were like, oh, this is great. Now we could go back home we're out of exile. Uh, and then what happened? So uh, what happens is Muhammad suddenly realizes that, wait, <laughs> I have been harping for years and years about one God and him having no daughters, no sons, nothing. And then suddenly I acknowledge these pagan deities. And then his closest followers were like, dude, what the hell, man? Yeah. And then he noticed that there... That's a direct uh, quote. That's exactly what they said. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell, man? <laughs> Followed closely by a dude, where's my car? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so Muhammad then comes up with this ingenious idea. He's like, oh, no, I made a blunder. I need to backtrack. Now he says that Gabriel came to him and said that, wait a minute. I didn't give you those last two verses. Wait, you need to do Islam 101. Who's Gabriel? So there's a... You have Allah, you have Muhammad, but Allah doesn't directly talk to Muhammad except one time, apparently, when he went to heaven, right? Uh, yeah. But because apparently if God talks to you, if God talks to a mountain, the mountain will just fucking melt, right? So you can't just talk mm -hmm. to people. So there's Gabriel, which is an archangel, uh, is the intermediary between God and Muhammad. Uh, and everything Muhammad has in the Quran uh, was told to Muhammad by Gabriel. Uh, so exactly. yeah, so now Gabriel is like, "What the fuck are these verses? I never told you these verses. Where did these verses came from?" Right. So then Muhammad says, "Oh, it was Satan who made me say those verses." Iblis. So now, Iblis. Yeah. So now you are like, "Wait a minute! The prophet can be tricked so easily by <laughs> Satan. How do we even trust this guy if he's talking about God's word or Satan's word?" Right. Right. How do we know the rest of them are not Iblis? The exactly. Right. And, and the more funny part is that 
even the Muslims will try their best to say that this is not authentic. This incident is directly mentioned in the, the Quran, Quran. Yes. 22 verse 52 or 53. It literally says that Allah allows sometimes the Satan to put his words on the mouth of the Prophet. And you open any tafsir, any exegesis of that verse, you get a reference to this incident. And Imam Hajar Asqalani, who was... Uh, I think a 14th century scholar who wrote the, the Fath al-Bari, one of the detailed exegesis of Sahih al-Bukhari. And he even says that you can try as much as you want, but there are two Sahih chains that go all the way to the Prophet's companions. And what they're called is Mursal Hadith. Basically, a lot of scholars accept them in the sense that they go back all the way up to the f first companion of the Prophet but don't go back to the prophet themselves because it's already so common because they were living around him. So they assume that it obviously generated from the prophet, but all the narr the narrators of that, that narration are from Bukhari and Muslim. So the, the, the strongest of the strongest. So just to be clear, just to be clear to the audience, uh, Sahih Muslim and Sahih Bukhari are the most are the most trusted, authentic source of hadith, which is the Muhammad sayings among Sunni uh, Muslims. But uh, Shias also uh, Shias also accept the story because I, I I know they accept the story. But uh, and so another thing to point I, out, that I just want yeah, go ahead. Just go ahead. the Quran also mentioned that they forgive Muhammad for this mistake. Because the devil has tried this on many other prophets successfully as well. So if you think about Muhammad coming up with the Quran himself, uh, he basically wrote that, hey, God is saying, hey, it's not a big deal. Prophets make mistakes. Other prophets have also made the same mistake. So he's, you know, he's basically writing that God said that this is not a big deal that my, I made this mistake. Right. <laughs> right. So I just want to mention that, you know, since just for the, talking about our sources that you know when we talk about bukhari and uh muslim being the two most authentic right uh, uh bukhari lived between 194 years after hijri which is after muhammad's time the migration to medina and uh, 256 so about 200 years afterwards uh th th is during this time that he compiled the hadith uh muslim lived between 204 and 261 um, after Hijri, that's after after so, Muhammad. So this is both of them lived at least. Both of these compilations of the Hadith were done at least two hundred years and after. The, and the Muhammad reason why they say Muslims, Sunni Muslims, say that they they are their sayings of Muhammad is trustworthy is because of the chain of narration. Because they come up with this method that this person directly heard it from Muhammad and told this person and told this person and told this person and told this person. And then they try to measure how trustworthy these people are. Hundred, I don't know how. And also how much corroboration, like whether there were multiple sources multiple that, source, uh, multiple that narrated the sources, same incident. And yeah. does it contradict the Quran in any way? But, but they think that these methods are very, very, um, you know, very good methods. Like they, they consider it completely authentic. Like this is because of these chains of narration. But we know today that chains of narration are one of the worst ways of, you know, make, finding the credibility of something. In fact, we have games around this called Chinese Whisper 
or the telephone broken game, telephone, broken telephone, yeah. because we know that narration every every time during a narration something changes and then eventually turns into something com- something completely different. So, so imagine that happening transgenerationally right. and progressively over two centuries. Right. So that that's why so, uh, you know skepticism is always a good thing. So when we say when we say authentic hadith, when we mean authentic according to Muslims, not authentic according to us. But yeah, go on. All right. So uh, another cool incident was uh, when Muhammad abolishes adoption. This is after Khadija has died. And the incident goes that he once went to his adopted son's house to see him, but the curtain Zaid. wasn't yet Zayd. And this is the only only companion that is directly mentioned by name in the Quran in Surah 33. And he goes only male into compa- his house. Only male companion. Then. No, the yeah. only companion. No, no. The By only- name. No, By no, name. I, no, but he was saying the only male companion. So, Armin, yeah. this is just, and this is actually really interesting. It'll be but interesting to the audience too. Oh, by name, but but I, uh, there no, are no, other people nobody. that were referred to without mentioning their no, name. No, no, no. no, no. Nobody. Abu Bakr was mentioned without referring his name. Yeah, yes, without referring to the... Well, no, so what happened was that the only companions, contemporaries of his that have ever been mentioned by name, right? Mm. Yes, apart from, without his name, yeah, his wives are mentioned, everything Mm. else that they've been mentioned as well. But the only, there are only two people who lived at his time uh, who were his contemporaries that were mentioned by name in the Quran. One is Zaid bin Harith, his uh, adopted son, and the other is Abu Lahab, who is his uncle, uh, where and it says cursed, his hands may his hands be cursed. Yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, and the but only apart woman, from that, his and daughter, the only woman mentioned in the Quran is Mar- Maryam. Uh, no, the wife of Pharaoh as well, Pharaoh's oh, wife, yeah, okay. and several other women, yeah. Yeah, wives yeah. of Muhammad as well. Right. No, um, so by, anyway, name, by name, I mean. But go on. Uh, I don't uh, know. No. Yeah. Anyways, uh, if you move forward, so Muhammad goes into his adopted son's house and he sees his wife naked or not dressed properly and he runs out and now he has feelings for her in his heart and the the most hilarious part is he then abolishes adoption to make a loophole because since his adoption is abolished the guy is no longer his son therefore making the girl free game for him to take now he comes up with the worst which is so self-explanatory. It literally says that you saw something and you had something in your heart that you did not want to disclose, but Allah had other plans and Allah disclosed it and married you both. And now he's married to his adopted son's ex-wife. Right. Yeah, ex-wife. Can I, cl- yeah. can I clarify this? This is very interesting. So, Muhammad, so at, the, at this time, it's, uh, incest is very frowned upon. Uh, especially, but not just any incest, incest with people that you're not related by blood as well. Like, for example, uh, if you're attracted... Daughter-in-law. Yeah, so daughter-in-law. So this Zayd is Muhammad's adopted son. So for him to be attracted to his wife is like a huge taboo, huge, huge taboo. And when he goes back home and he's upset that he's attracted to him, Zayd comes and like, tells him like, hey, I don't even want this woman. You can have him, right? have her, right? And Muhammad is like, no, he's like, this is your wife. This is bad. And then he, but he really wants her, right? So he comes up with a solution that, you know what? Adopted sons, you know, we don't need that. <laughs> Adopted <laughs> sons are not really sweet. He, he even changed son. the name. Even changed yeah, the name. Like, from don't call your son, yeah, don't call yourself the son. Yeah, don't call yourself 
son of Muhammad, Ibn Muhammad. Call yourself Ibn whatever, whoever your dad was, right. but you're not my I, son. Actually, and this, this, this has consequences. This, this has is huge like since that time. Yeah. In, uh, in, uh, in, at least in Pakistan, I can tell you about Pakistan. About, uh, first of all, you're not allowed to take the name of your parents if you're adopted. They're never given the same kind of inheritance rights and everything else that you are, that biological children are given. And adoption overall has become taboo because, right. um, uh, because of essentially the, the Quranic, um, sort of denunciation of it. So, in and, a way. And, so. And, the the issue I know a lot of ex-Muslims that this was the verse that made the Quran seem way more human than divine to them. Like a verse, if we have to understand, the, our, as a Muslim, your understanding is that this is a divine book in heaven, independent of space and fucking time that was predated Muhammad. It was there from uncreated word of God and it's talking about Muhammad being attracted to this woman and all of a sudden there's no adoption because Muhammad wants to marry this woman like why would that be there this is, seems very personal and very convenient and another thing inter interesting is that then the verse comes that marries this woman to Muhammad right so this is the only woman that in the whole fucking world apparently that was married <laughs> by God to somebody like no every other woman like either comes so there's a marriage ceremony but this woman there's a verse marrying I think there was a competition what's her name by the way this woman forgot her name uh, uh, Ume, was it Ome Kulsum or no can't remember no 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 uh, it just slipped out of my mind there was Aisha, <laughs> I'll look it up. Aisha and uh, this woman had a competition like they were like uh, they, they were fighting with each other. Yeah, it was it was uh, Omikul Thum. Omikul Thum. And Aisha oh, no. mentioned, oh, yeah. "I am the remember, I am the woman that God sent a verse down for to for her innocence to to testify her innocence." And this woman says, "I'm the woman that God married to Muhammad." So they had you know bragging rights. By the way, I just yeah. checked; it's true. Mariam, I was right. Mariam is the only woman mentioned by name in by the name. Quran. Yeah, every other woman mm -hmm. was referred to, but never mentioned by name. Right, go ahead. No, wait, hold on. That that wasn't it. I'll I'll find the right name. I, okay, I yeah, find out the right name because we went. With, yeah. Anyways, so uh, another uh, very interesting incident, or the talk of the town that catches every Muslim and uh, every critic of Islam's attention is Muhammad's marriage to Aisha. Right, he was fifty-four. He married a six-year-old girl and consummated when she was nine. Yeah. Now the incidents right. leading up to this. Ali, yeah. Ali sorry, it's Zainab bin Bint Josh. That Josh. was her name. What? Sorry, sorry. Yeah, Zainab. It wasn't in Michael. Zainab. Zainab. Okay. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Josh. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, Abdullah, we're going to let you go uninterrupted because it's... Uh, go, go. Yeah, we want to make sure we get through all this. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. This is everyone's favorite part, Aisha. <laughs> so, the, the the incident leading up to why Muhammad married it, it is so bizarre. It's 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 outright disgusting. So Muhammad was sleeping. He had a dream where an angel came to him carrying a child wrapped in silk and showed it to him. This not happened once, but it happened twice. Muhammad interpreted this child to be his future wife. Guess who the child was? his best friend's youngest daughter or his best friend's daughter who was six years old at the time. Best friends according to Sunnis. His best friend according to Shias is Ali. So you <laughs> <laughs> we still think that Abu Bakr was his friend. Anyway, go right. on. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is when Muhammad went and initially asked Abu Bakr about this, this is all in Sahih Bukhari, 
And Abu Bakr's like, but am I not your brother? Like, you know? And then he's like, no, no, no. We're brothers in Islam, but she is still lawful for me to marry. And I mean, I'm the prophet of God. And then Abu Bakr couldn't say no. So, Wait, did Abu Bakr at any point say, isn't she too young? He didn't directly imply that. Okay. But he was trying to suggest that, hey, man, like, I'm your brother in religion. Why are you doing this? You know, so right. that's, that's as much as an ob- objection I can remember. Plus, she, w- she was going to be engaged to somebody else. And Abu Bakr wanted that. So the, f- the, the idea that this was uh, normal back then is true. Mm, I would say it wasn't normal for this young. Uh, but again, I mean... I don't know for for puberty for puberty it was normal like uh, the uh, girl was nine ten years old and she had puberty I mean people used to get married to this was actually normal not just over there in Arabia it was was all around the world in in Europe and every until just a few hundred years ago uh, this was uh, the child and brides were very very common all over the I mean Thomas Jefferson no no okay 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 this is not now we have child. And we have child, okay? And I know both of them are discussing, but a 14-year-old girl is significantly different from a six-year-old girl, okay? Like, you, let's not lump all of them as children, okay? Because yeah, yeah, Muhammad, no, no, no. I, I'm, yeah. no Muhammad, I'm not, did I'm not have, that. Muhammad didn't consummate marriage until age nine, but he still did a lot of stuff before age nine. Is that, yeah, he did. Like, he did. Yeah. Between yeah. six, eight, it's not like he didn't touch her between age six and nine. There was a lot going on. But go- Khomeini uh, endorsed it too. I mean, he's yeah. the one. Who- yeah, oh yeah. And, okay. and- uh, no, no. But what I'm saying is that if I'm, I'm giving one example, but the thing is that this was actually very common, really across the oh, yeah. world. It's common in India among Hindu societies. I mean, it, all of it was common everywhere. Right. So, like, can, I- what was going between six and nine? Can you tell people that because this is very important, I think, because this is the, this is the pro- and remember while you're explaining that. This is the fucking perfect man, according to um, one point, how many we have? Eight right now? 1.8 billion fucking people right now believe that this is the perfect role model for mankind to follow. Okay, so go on. So uh, it's a very nuanced conversation. And the first thing I'd say is I don't make this a big issue as long as Muslims don't project Muhammad to be the best example for all times to come. If they say he was a man of his time and he had committed child marriage, I'm like, it's still pretty bad, but all right, I'll leave the point B. The issue arises is when Muslims say that he's the perfect man for all times to come. And then you ask them, well, if, if, if is child marriage okay now? And then you can get into the philosophical Relative, more relativism and objective and subjective morality conversation uh, would make her wash his semen off his clothes. Uh, and then, I mean, the, some narrations go to the point of saying that he would tie her, but the, their authenticity is questionable. Uh, what's the sad part about it is like when she was actually given away at the age of nine the way the story is narrated is that not allowed to make images or idols or toys with any facial features now ibn hazar asqalani the same guy who wrote the 
the, the exegesis of Bukhari says underneath that hadith that it was only allowed for Aisha because prepubescent teens aren't held responsible for such things. So he was implying that Aisha was a prepubescent teen when the marriage was consummated. Now, the point gets more and more interesting when you open, I believe it's Surah 66, verse 4, where it says that it prescribes idda or waiting period after divorce for oh, women. Surah 65, verse 4. Yeah. 65 this verse is the four. most, okay, so just to be clear, there are, there are sahih, authentic hadiths mentioning the age of consummation and age of marriage, okay? So anybody that denies these ages is throwing out uh, most of Islam with it because this is, hadith is the source of what we know most, what we know about most of Islam. But, to these, now what you're going to talk about is that even the Quran itself has evidence that having sex with women before, uh, you know, for with previous, previous, how do you say, prebuescent? Prebuescent. Prebuescent. Okay. Um, ch children, the Quran itself has evidence that that's not only allowed, but this verse suggests that it's common. Right, go yeah, on. So, so, so the worst goes is it, it starts off by saying that, hey, if you divorce uh, your wife, she has to wait a certain period of months before she can remarry. Right. And what happens is it goes on giving a list like older women, women who've uh, had their periods, and then it goes and says women who have not yet had their periods, right? And when you open the exegesis of this verse, you find out that Muhammad had initially only stated a part of women that had had periods. And then some companion says, well, what about those who still haven't and are too young? And then this part came in that, yeah, and those who haven't had periods also have to wait for about, I think, three months? Three months. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is waiting period, according to Quran, is only and only applicable if you have consummated the marriage. Therefore, right. this means that you, you were allowed to consummate marriage with prepubescent girls, and that's why they were supposed to also have a three-month so, waiting period. So, translation, those wives of, wives of you, uh, you that you fucked before they had their periods, they also have to wait. If you die, they also have to wait three months before they could marry again. Right, not just your wives that you got married before they got their periods. The wives that you married before their periods and you fucked, right? They yeah. they should also. This is a and this is a Quranic verse, right? This and is not just hadith. to make just to make matters worse, Sahih Bukhari has a chapter heading where he quotes the verse about uh, women having less, uh, like haven't had periods yet. And guess what? The example he uses. Aisha's example. For the exegesis of this verse, Imam Bukhari uses the hadith that, yeah, it is okay to marry prepubescent young girls and consummate marriage with them because Aisha did this and then he cites the hadith. Right. So, uh, moving on from that. Wait, okay. Um, we need to. <laughs> this is okay. Yeah. Okay, but so, but just to, just to clarify, when I say 1.8 billion Muslims, I, you know, I, it's hard as, it's horrible that people see this such a character as a role model, right? But 
I do want to emphasize that don't do not look at every Muslim as somebody that is okay with this. The fact that so many Muslims try to argue against the uh, this the suggestion that this means it's okay to have sex with children. This is this this is because they don't want this to be true. You know, I I criticize them for not saying the logic, not saying how false or logical, and not saying how obvious this is that this is, you know, discussing and how this ideology should be, you know, completely get, you know, you, you should leave such a religion that teaches, you know, any 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 other book or any other form of uh, an ideology suggesting something like this would never be tolerated, right? So I would criticize them for not being able to see this, but I would not go as far as saying they are actively on purpose on purpose promoting child molestation okay actually in, in all honesty like the uh, most muslims that i speak to now even around the world not just in north america just argue that they just say she wasn't nine yeah she was much older but so that's there, a, there's many a, there's many gymnastic arguments and all of them are wrong but the fact yeah, that yeah. these gymnastic arguments exist is because they don't want this to be true because True. they are they don't not, like it. They, they don't, don't want it like for their it kids. Because they yeah. don't want to have a religion that promotes something like this. But go on. This is another another point where most Muslims are better than Islam. Islam. Most General. Muslims are better. They're than probably exactly. better examples than yeah. than Muhammad himself. Right. Yeah. So uh, now we're going to get into the most interesting part of his life, the Medina phase, and so we'll just start by uh, seeing how he got to Medina. Um, so. It came a point where the torture was getting too severe and Muhammad was also getting very aggressive. And then he, yeah, uh, he made comments to the leaders saying, I will bring you slaughter. These are documented Tabari and Ibn Asad. He literally threatened them, right? And they were like, okay, Muhammad? we've had enough. Muhammad yeah, said that. Before he went to Medina, he'd already threatened them that I will bring you slaughter. And... Uh, so they were like, okay, you know what? This is enough. So they started planning a, a, an assassination attempt. When they tried at night, he wasn't there in his bed and he had already escaped. Uh, he left with his friend Abu Bakr. Can to I Medina. add some detail to this? Because a lot of people are saying, why didn't they just kill him earlier? Okay, because, um, you know, these things could between tribes could start war, right? When you kill somebody from one tribe, then that other tribe, even if they didn't like the person, they feel like it's a code, it's a moral code that you just have to now wage war against another tribe. And this, this moral code existed for a reason to avoid, like there's a social order, right? So if you know that if I kill this person, I have to deal with the entire fucking tribe, then it's a, it's a way to just not randomly kill people you don't like, right? So this is the reason why nobody, like Muhammad was part of the Quraysh, right? Tribe. So you didn't want to just kill him because then you would be like, well, was it because of the clan or the tribe? I forgot. But it was because of his his uncle was still alive. When his uncle passed, the leadership of the clan did right. not guarantee Muhammad protection, and then he was fair game. And that's when they were like, "Okay, this is enough." And then he's getting too threatening. But even, and then they were like, "But even then, even though the clan said, okay, Muhammad is fair game now,' even then, when they came to kill him, they had a member of each tribe, so that." no tribe would be responsible for killing Muhammad. So if, if you want to be like blaming a tribe, it would be like every fucking tribe now has to be, you can't wage war against all tribes. So they made sure exactly. they had a representative of each tribe to trying to assassinate Muhammad. But yeah, go on. 
So anyways, uh, before this, uh, he had sent a couple of preachers to Medina, who was at that time known as the city of Yathrib. And they liked him. They had a couple back and forth. They had these pledges of Aqaba, where these people pledged to support Muhammad, whatever. And then eventually, just to sum it up, they all, all the Muslims migrated to Medina. Now, here's where Muhammad has a whole shift in personality and character from being a pacif- more of a pacifist and talking about afterlife, the Quran also, you can see it. It becomes very, very political. It becomes, he becomes power hungry. He starts from going from pacifist approach to a very aggressive, violent and terrorizing approach. Right. Um, initially, when he gets to Medina, but, he but signs... Can we, can we do Islam 101? Just to be clear, this, this hijrat, this uh, migration from uh, Mecca to Medina or Yasrib as it was called back then, um, this is the most important event. You know how in Christianity, Jesus' birth is is the beginning, like the most important event? No, in Islam, this migration, this is why the calendar of Islam starts at the day of the migration, the day that Muhammad went from Mecca and with all Muslims and they went to uh, Medina. And just to let you know, when they, when they went to kill him, he wasn't in the bed. Ali was in the bed. This is what Shias brag about. Mm-hmm. Ali was sacrificing, putting his life at risk uh, for Muhammad. But yeah, go on. Yeah. So anyways, in that city where Muhammad migrated to, it was a very different political situation. There were three different tribes of Jews living there. And then there were two tribes of Arabs, Aus and Khazraj, that had been fighting for a while. And Muhammad, what he did was he took, he brought together the Aus and Khazraj and made it into the uh, the Ansar, the helpers, and the people who had migrated from Mecca came to be known as the Muhajirun or the mm. emigrants. Now, what he did was he came into this treaty with all the people and the Jews saying that you can live and work and keep your stuff here. Uh, with the condition of Muhammad can, is, is more or less, less of a leader. And then uh, he, like if the city gets attacked, everybody has to pitch in. And, you know, you have to have a combined effort to co- protect the community and everything. They wrote a constitution, which right? They wrote yeah, in, no, yeah. it's, 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 it's alleged it was written. Some say it was just uh, spoken mm-hmm. by word of yeah. mouth. But it was, there was some degree of negotiation going on there. Right. So you notice that initially when Muhammad comes here, he, he can see that, you know, Jews are an opportunity to cash on. Because they have similar <laughs> ideas, and okay. he was very nice to them at first. <laughs> you know that's that that could be like a very general theme throughout history. Jews are an opportunity <laughs> to cash on. <laughs> I think every single community that Jews lived under, at some point, the leaders uh, came to that conclusion. But go on. <laughs> so. Muhammad was very nice to them. And you see this in the Quran where there are verses saying that, you know, Jews and Christians, whoever believe in the last day and the God and their books, they're going to heaven. They're your brothers and be nice to them. You know, they're Ahl Kitab, the people of the book. You can even marry them and whatnot. Right? right. Now, and then Muhammad even prayed towards Jerusalem. Their Jerusalem, right? And he kept trying to insist and tell them nicely that, hey, man, you know, like, you should be, accept me. I mentioned in your books. And when the, they realized, you know, that this guy, he's not a prophet. And Muhammad saw that, that these people aren't going to get convinced. You see a sudden change of tone in the Quran. Right. From people of heaven, they become the vilest of creatures, the mm-hmm. mushrikeen. And then the Jews, like they're, they're, a tribe of Jews was turned into the apes and uh, 
like pigs and no. all sorts of this wild hatred starts spewing out towards Wait, the Jews. Were the Christian pigs and the Jews monkeys or apes or was it the other way around? I forgot. The Christians, I, I, yeah. I think it was just the two tribes of the Jews. Okay. Yeah. Uh, now, what we're going to do is we're going to, so after two oh. years of this, so guys, I'm going to make a quick correction. Just one, the, the constitution of Medina actually is a surviving document. And it's oh, in addition ooh. to the, yeah, in addition to the Quran, so it's studied actually very widely among uh, scholars, and so there was uh, there's a lot of papers that have been written about it, and it's actually uh, uh, also one of the few, apart from the Quran, is probably the only other document that is uh, reliably thought to be from the time of Muhammad himself. Oh, nice. I, I, I want to add another uh, detail, something that you mentioned uh, um, that about the Muhammad separating to Muslims into two groups, the, the people from Medina, which are the helpers and the migrants that came from Mecca. This division lived and became a political issue way after Muhammad. Like these people, which there, there was a huge competition be between who are the m more important people. The, the Medinas were who accepted Muhammad in their city or the people that were with Muhammad from the origin from Mecca. And also this, the separation you could see also in the verses of the Quran. The verses of the Quran are separated from Mecca, Meccan verses and Medina sources, the Medina sources, the verses that came to Muhammad in Mecca and the verses that came to Muhammad in, uh, in Medina. And you could see the tone change in the verses. As you mentioned, the tone is completely different. It's much more from a position of authority. But one thing I think we missed here is that why did why did people from Medina invite Muhammad uh, like every like, to come and become their ruler for some fucking reason? Like at first he wasn't supposed to be their ruler. Like he was supposed to just come and negotiate something for them because they heard there was this honest person. So why was he invited? Um, uh, so at the time it was two tribes, Aus and Khazraj. As far as I know, they were in a in a constant tribal war, right. and they wanted some unity and stuff. And then Muhammad had sent some preachers, and what they had talked about, they liked them. Uh, so initially, when Muhammad came, he wasn't the leader per se. This right. he got to, he rose to full power after the Battle of Badr. Right. Initially, like Abdullah bin Ubay uh, was the person who was in line to become the next leader, and he was the most respected person of the community. Uh, yeah, so what ended up happening was two years after that pact that Muhammad wrote and it was signed in, with the Jews, there's two hadiths, one in Bukhari and one in Muslim. And Muhammad one day gets up from the mosque and goes to these Jews, like uh, two, I think, two other tribes, and just says to them, You better accept Islam or else you're not safe. And they're like, We understand, but no, thank you. And then he says, I wish to expel you from this land, so you better accept Islam. And he repeats this three times. Right. And which is basically verbally nullifying the pact. But it goes back, and the Jews are like, yeah, we understand. And they replied to him three times the same reply. But the stories that we were told it was that he was threatened while he was staying at their house. Like they tried oh, to make an attempt at his life. That was the excuse. Oh, we'll, we'll get to that. That oh, is okay. a very, very interesting story, too. Okay. okay. Um, so. Now what starts happening is Muhammad this was just them um, taking their prop, like getting compensated for the properties that were taken for the, from them in Mecca. So is that mm -hmm. real? Is that true? 
Yeah, uh, they say that their properties were confiscated, but what Muhammad did was he went and beyond from just property confiscation and getting back what had been taken from him. Right. He didn't stop at one raid or two raids. He kept on doing raids to a point where the Meccans were like really pissed that their whole trade route was blocked and they were getting like their lack of resources. Right. Now, eventually, you know, they're like, hey, Muhammad's coming to intercept Abu Sufyan's caravan, one of the leaders of Mecca. So they amass an army. Now, the Meccans came with an army of about a thousand men and the Muslims were about 300 men. The thing was, the Meccans were, were, were really overconfident. They were drunk they, and they did not, because they were merchants, they weren't like uh, okay. experienced warfare. Okay. And their overconfidence got to them. And at the other side, Muhammad's followers were absolute fanatics like running to their deaths being uh being motivated by the by the huris and the beautiful imagery of paradise and then muhammad tell them oh if you have a wound and the blood will smell like musk on the day of judgment and stuff. Huri means huris are the just to clarify huris are the, the virgins an, the, of heaven the angel virgins that you're gonna have sex with forever once you die as a martyr so when muslims are victorious in this battle against all odds and apparently the worst of the Quran said there's armies of angels fighting with them. (laughs) And now when Muhammad gets back from this, he is now in a state of power. He realizes that he can do things now. Right. Now he's rising to power, right? And he's more confident now. You know, like when when they tried to kill Hitler and they were unsuccessful and then he felt like he must be divine or some shit like there must be some protection i think muhammad when he came from that war he also like hey maybe like there's something to yeah, the shit, yeah. Like, outnumbered three to one and we still want it has to be fighting and stuff right right, right, right. i mean there's a very uh, funny incident that happened during that battle too was when muhammad saw the army this is an ibn hasak and tabari as well he freaked out Muhammad sees the army of the infidels. They're way more. He's freaking out. It's his first battle. He's not a war guy, right? Right. <laughs> he starts praying on the ground, weeping to the Lord in front of his whole army. And Abu Bakr had to grab him by the neck and be like, prophet of God, what are you doing? So Wait, what the hell? Muhammad. I never heard this story. Is this authentic hadith? It's in a, Ibn Tabari. Ibn, oh, it's Tabari. Okay, no. And then he gets... To the tent, and then Muhammad prays, and then the wording is so cute. Muhammad fell a small sleep for a for a small little while, like he basically fell unconscious, and then he wakes up rejoicing and tells Abu Bakr that, "Look, look, I can see uh, Gabriel holding his horse, and I can see the dust on the teeth of his horse." Mm-hmm. The what? Yeah, it's as bizarre as it sounds. No, can you repeat that? Because I'm not sure if I heard you right. Gabriel was on a horse and there was dust on the teeth of the horse. Yeah. Wow. And Muhammad and then they went to battle and won. Wait, why this on is, the teeth of the horse is so bad? It's, 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 uh, it's in Tabari and Ibn Hisak. Hmm. Um, anyways, Muhammad comes back. You know, he's full of uh, this pride and he thinks he's divine and he's more self-assured. Now is when he starts killing all the poets and the critics. Now he's stepping right. his authority. Right, right. He killed this, remember, remember this. Remember this part when people tell you that Muhammad was accepting of people that disagreed with him. That's all so 
horse shit. Where is the source of this? Like when he started killing ho- poets and people? In almost all Sira books, it's documented in hadiths. Like these blasphemy killings were common. Uh, right. uh, he killed tribal leaders. So there's what the way it would go is some guy would say something about Muhammad or against the Muslims, like write poetry, right? And Jews had already seen enough of what he was doing. Right. And then he would just go to the mosque one day and just say, hey, I don't like this guy. He's heard the messenger and Allah who will get rid of him. And he'll hire assassin from the mosque yard. And then that assassin, it like the story is the way they are. It literally sounds like Assassin's Creed where these three people, they climb this fortress wall <laughs> and they get night and then they find the guy and then they stab him in the stomach Wait. and then pull his signs out and then run back. And then the guy's the assassin's leg breaks and he sees Muhammad in the day and then Muhammad touches his leg and the leg is fixed. It's, it's also bizarre. And then this one where this, why is this not a movie yet? <laughs> I, I, this needs to be a movie. A lot of the stuff needs to, Tabari needs to be a movie. Oh yeah. It okay. really does. But whoever makes it, blessed, like get a good life insurance. And, yeah. Well, <laughs> And then there's this lady who's holding a baby with four other kids around her. And this guy comes up to her, separates her few month old baby from her, and then just stabs her and runs away. And it didn't happen once or twice. It happened quite a few Wait, times. And stabs her because what? Because he criticized. Hello? Hello? Oh. What happened? Can you hear? Oh, no, no, no. It's just I was just sharing a screen. Ah, so with the tabri, the, the thing. <laughs> yeah, a messenger had slept a light sleep in the shelter. And when he woke, he said, Abu Bakr, God's aid has come to you. Here is Gabriel taking hold of the reins of his horse and leading it. And there's dust on its front teeth. <laughs> That's from uh, the history of At-Tabri. Okay, amazing. All right. I didn't even know that. Anyway. So, uh, wait, I know where was Ali, I so don't know what you did, but now I have to figure out how to fix the screen. Oh, shit. Really? Yeah, don't do that again. Wait, <laughs> wait, let me oh, see. okay. It's gone. <laughs> wait, wait. Oh, so yeah, I was just sharing a screen. Mm-hmm. Okay, there you go. Anyway, keep talking. All right. So, wait. so what happens is uh, Muhammad, when he's killing these poets, right? He's violating the pact of Medina he signed pretty openly. Okay? He even killed the Kaab bin Ashraf, who was the leader of Banu Nadir tribe, who had gone to Mecca to uh, like write poetry in support of the Meccans and to encourage them to, you know, don't give up. He comes back and the way they killed him, like that was like full on Assassin's Creed where this guy knew that he was, he was going to, he was under threat because other poets had already been killed. So he had this big fortress he was hiding in and his, his, I think stepbrother had become a Muslim. And what he did was he went to his house and he said, you know what? I don't like Muhammad. And he lured him out. And then Cobb was a, a perfume dealer, a perfume merchant. And then he's like, Cobb, I really smell like nice perfume from your head. So he's like, can I, can I touch your hair? So his brother passes his hair through his head and he grabs his hair, yanks his head back, yells and other people come and start stabbing the guy. Okay, what the and, fuck? Yeah, it's like when you read this, you're like, what the hell is going on? And then these guys come to Muhammad the next day telling him about this. And he's like, no two ghosts will butt their heads over them. And he says, do whatever it takes to kill them. These are his words, whatever means necessary. Um, and, and wait, the woman that was the baby was taken from her and stabbed to death. What, did, what was her crime? She was a poet, Asma. And she was a poet that made fun of Muhammad in her poetry? 
Okay. Muhammad and uh, just generally uh, criticize him. So, so, the, 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 so basically, the, these people that go and kill because Muhammad is being insulted, and other Muslim, pe the peaceful Muslims saying this is not Islam, the peaceful Muslims are wrong because killing people because they insulted Muhammad is Sunnah. <laughs> right? It, it, another incident comes to my mind which solidifies this is uh, so. There was a blind, this is in Nisai and Abu Dawud, both hadiths were great sahih. A blind slave Jewess was living with a Muslim man and she kept on insulting the prophet and mocking him. The Muslim owner gave, and he, the Muslim guy had kids with this lady, like two or three kids. He gave her an ultimatum, stop, stop, stop. And she went on. He, she didn't stop. She was sleeping with her babies. He went, stabbed her in the belly, killed her. The blood fell on the baby. This was reported to Muhammad. And then Muhammad said, her blood is permissible the next morning. But why would they include these stories? Didn't they think this makes us look bad? Like, or like, <laughs> like, or, or is this okay to them based on their standard? Like, if I was like marketing uh, in charge of their marketing department, I would like, yeah, maybe not include this part. Like, n no? Like, do you have any theories for why would, you, why would they keep... Like, this was written I mean, during what? The Umayyad time or the Abbasid time? The, the thing was, historically, you know, the blasphemy law is a very, very good political tool to use to keep right. in check. So okay. it makes sense to include this. Right, you're right. In, in that way. Okay. Now, after, like, Muhammad's been killing these poets, this comes a point where the Battle of Ohad happens, right? The second battle. Yeah. So Muhammad is with this guy, Abdullah bin Ubay, who's the other big figure in Medina. And he suggests that, hey, we should stay inside the city and defend it. You know, it'd be easier. But Muhammad talks to his companions. He decides, like, you know what? I'm going to go out at the Mount of Ohad. And when Muhammad is about to leave, Abdullah says, you didn't take my advice, I'm not coming. So he deserts with 300 men. Now, Muhammad's planning is all messed up. Now, he was expecting to have more men so he can cover his flank, but he couldn't. So he puts archers up in a certain spot, and then he tells them, do not leave from your position. If you leave, we're exposed from the back and whatnot. Eventually, the Muslims have a good start in the battle. They're winning, winning. And then suddenly the archers see the Muslims winning. They jump off their spots, going against the direction, and they go well, jump. No, and well, they them. jump off their spot because they're saying that they're winning, and the other Muslims are war booty. committing, yeah, com collecting war booty, and they're like, "We're not just going to stay here while everybody else is getting stuff." So they—that's why they—that's why they leave their position, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and then Khalid bin Walid and a couple other guys went from behind, attacked Muslims, and Muhammad and a lot of his prominent, uh, sorry, prominent Muslims died, and Muhammad was almost murdered he had his cheek uh, like a like a steel helmet going through his cheek uh, missed a tooth or two like it, it was to the point where rumors spread that muhammad had He's actually dead, yeah. passed in the battle right yeah and then uh, long story short muhammad goes back from to ohad now people were criticizing abu sufyan why didn't you pursue and go to yasrib to finish them off so abu sufyan says listen i had a problem with muhammad i don't have a problem with 
the people of Yatsrib because they're kids and women there and he, his human side comes out and he says, no, I don't want to go kill them. You know? It seems like the Armenian leaders seem like a lot uh, better. <laughs> like once you read the stories, like they seem pretty reasonable. Like we, we we were as as kids, we were raised to think like Muhammad was so great, and these other Meccan leaders, they were they were fucking evil. Like the the most evil thing you could think of. But now when you read these stories, they're like they seem the one that, the ones that were tolerant. Were like, we're going to let Muhammad practice his religion as long as he didn't uh, say people stop shit on our gods and they when they attack him like oh we don't want to kill ch- women and children whereas muhammad says like hey kill women if they insult me like it seems like you know they were kind of not i mean they weren't fa- all that great but they weren't they were much more tolerant than muhammad right doesn't it seem like that yeah yeah it does but it, just to be fair though like at the end of that battle uh when uh, Muhammad's uncle Hamza was killed, Abu Sufyan's wife ate the liver, <laughs> ate the liver, chewed it, mutilated his body, mutilated a lot of Muslims' faces and stuff, cut off their noses and ears. So, I mean, the Meccans... But they were dead. They were, you can't, the dead yeah. can't feel pain. They had a, a benevolent kind of cannibalistic tendency. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I don't see... I mean, it. Why would you let it go to waste? It's good food and it uh, can't feel it. Okay, now, now you're reaching. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, Petersonian. All right. Anyway. All right, all right. So, now Muhammad comes back from the Battle of Ohud and... Uh, now he's uh, oh, just one, one, one detail. This woman is the mother of Muawiyah, which became the person that started the Umayyad uh, dynasty. dynasty. And a lot of people called Muawiyah behind his back the son of the liver eater. But go on, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So, anyways, Muhammad comes back, and you know his his authority is in question, and you know the Jews are making more and more fun of him because he lost the battle. And uh, there's a huge problem because now he's realized there's a lot of hypocrites because 300 men just left the army. So he's coming up with worses, trying to single out the hypocrites as well. Now, the first Jewish tribe gets expelled. And the way it happened was there was this Muslim lady, the Banu Kenuka. They were jewelers and stuff. She was at one of their stores and a Jew guy pranked her by like either tying or lifting up her skirt and that exposed her her bottom. Now, a Muslim man saw this prank. He got infuriated and just killed the Jew guy just for playing the prank. Then the Jews were like, you just killed the Jew? And the Jews gathered around the Muslim man and killed him, right? So it's like, it's, it's a very childish thing to kill somebody over. And then Muhammad was like, no, this is it. You know, he goes to this tribe and he's like, this is it. You know, he besieges them. And some say it lasted 10 days, four days to six days. And some sources say it's like 14 to 16 days of siege. Eventually, the Muhammad wants to kill them and they gave up. Abdullah bin Ubay was the guy who went and grabbed Muhammad from his, like here, and told him, listen, these people defended me from my enemies before you even came to the city. I will not let you take these people. And like he said this to Muhammad three times. So Muhammad said, okay have your people but then he took everything they had like as war as war booty right so you say you, you can leave that leave the city but you can't leave take your stuff right yeah you can only take what you can pack on the camels no weapons and all the other stuff another, stays another and another people t- seem to grab muhammad it, it doesn't seem like he was the, all <laughs> that in control of everybody but <laughs> all right go so on. this incident is also in tabri and ibn Asak. now right. what's interesting to note is Muhammad loses Ohad. 
he was running low on resources. It was a very, very bad blow. The angels didn't come this, to help that. Ohud is the second, the second war, right? Yeah. But he blames so, it on the, on the people that left their position, right? Yeah, yeah. And the angels didn't show up. <laughs> <laughs> and then, now, what's very appealing to Muhammad at this point of time is he's low on resources. He needs war booty. He couldn't get it in Ohad. Where does he get it from? Expel the Jews and take their stuff. It was so convenient timing. That's what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So this I think, happened. I think we, there was something that you mentioned, touched on about the Jews. I think that is. I think it's very important when when Muhammad came to the Jews and tried to convince them to Islam. I think even before he came to Yathrib or Medina. Uh, it's important to recognize that he was building his entire religion based on Judaism. Like he was, so this is why it's an Abrahamic religion, right? So he didn't see all the other religions, the, the, the people that were worshiping idols, all of those were fake, but Judaism and Christianity were real religions that were just changed, like they were corrupted, but they were real religions. And this is why, uh, so Muhammad was trying to correct me if I'm wrong, but Muhammad thought that he would be successfully be able to convince the Jews that he's the Messiah they, that they're waiting for. Um, and this is why a lot of the rules in Islam, like not eating pork, is similar to Judaism. And this is why Muslims, before they pray towards Kaaba, they used to pray towards Jerusalem. The, the switch from Jerusalem to Kaaba happened because Muhammad became so disappointed that Jews were not converting to Islam. And he went from being a religion that was so obsessed with judaism it was so obsessed with judaism that one of the most common stories that you hear in the quran is moses the story of moses right mm -hmm. and even when muhammad went to heaven when he got on the horse and went to heaven he came back and say i look i saw abraham i looked just like him I like that's what he said <laughs> <laughs> so he, he this whole thing was this is judaism this is judaism uh, uh you know 2.0 but then went from a religion so obsessed with Judaism to a religion anti-Judaism when, when he when the Jews didn't convert to Islam. Yeah, but go on. Exactly, and you can see that switch. Yeah. Uh, so, anyways, one of the poets that he had killed was Kaab bin Ashraf. Now, the second tribe, the Banu Nadir. What happened with them was these two Muslims had uh, sorry, a Muslim had killed two people totally irrelated. To the Jews, okay, and the Muslims had to pay blood money to them. Now, as part of the, apparently the Pact of Medina was that everybody has to chip in with the blood money, but the Jews had already uh, for uh, Banu Nadir had already seen enough. They're like, you, you killed our leader Kab. Okay, you've already killed three, four poets. You've already threatened to expel us. How are we? How do you expect us to pay blood money for your person's mess up? Right. Right. Now. People were not wanting to pay it. Then Muhammad's like, no, you have to. And then some people want to deliberate the issue and negotiate. So Muhammad goes to their fort. Now, there's two versions of the story, as far as I remember. One is that he was at the door of their fortress and standing and waiting for them to let him in when he suddenly walked off. The other said he was sitting inside the fortress in a room with an open roof. And he got up and suddenly walked off unexplainably. When his companions, I believe it was Ali and Abu Bakr, or I think it was Omar, when asking, why did you walk off? And then he explained that Gabriel came to me and informed me that they were going to throw a stone on me to kill me. 
Gabriel came to him. Oh, and okay, told him so that. this is so important because as kids, we were told that they tried to make an attack. They tried to kill him, but they didn't try fucking anything. Muhammad no. said that Gabriel told me that they were trying yeah. to kill me. <laughs> and you'll see how, how savage Gabriel is in a little bit as well. So this reason that some angel came and told him they might kill you, Muhammad said, that's enough. He did the same thing. He besieged them, let the people go, so, take whatever they can, and then took all their weapons and all their money and stuff. So this, but is, the here's second, one this is the second time this happened. So there was one tribe of Jews that were already kicked out and you took mm -hmm. all their money. This is the second yeah. tribe of a different tribes of Jews that you're doing the same thing to again and yeah. from the same city. Okay, but there's mm -hmm. a difference. What's, what's the difference? Yeah. So uh, the, the, the difference here is that in the first one was that there was a lady that was molested and then there was a sequence of killings that started it. Here mm -hmm. it's... Muhammad fearing somebody <laughs> because Gabriel told him that. Right. <laughs> Anyways, uh, that what ends up happening is the next thing is the Battle of Trench. So these these people have had enough. Two Jewish tribes they get together. Those who were expelled go to the Meccans. They amass a huge army, about ten thousand men, and become come uh, to Medina. Uh, so this one's gonna have a sad ending. So as well, Khandak. So this is the yeah. Jews uniting, leaving Medina, going to Mecca, and uniting with the Meccans to f like, okay, this we had you guys sent us this plague called Muhammad. <laughs> now help us get rid of him, right? Okay. Yeah. So they come with an army and stuff, and they lay a siege. It lasts for about twenty-eight days or something, and it literally exhausted the Muslim resources. The only way Muslims survived was they took the advice of a Persian. Companion, Salman built, yeah. yeah, built the trench around this exposed part of the city, which was unheard of in in the Arabian Peninsula at that time. <laughs> Eventually, by the end of the battle, now the story gets so bizarre. There was the last tribe left of the Jews called the Banu Qurayza. They had done nothing wrong. Their friends, the other tribes, came to their door and they told them, "No, we don't want any part in it." According to the Pact of Medina, they were supposed to defend the city with Muhammad. And all they said was, you know what? We're just going to stay neutral. We won't let them in. We won't kill anybody. But we're not going to take sides. And after all they had seen with Muhammad... So this, is the, this is the third... Okay, so now we're talking about third tribe of Jews. And they kind of betrayed the other Jews, didn't they? Right? Like when the other Jews tell us like, hey, help us. They're like, no, you're on your own. And they also told Muhammad, we're not going to fight in your battles like, hey, look, we didn't help the other Jews. We're just going to just let us be, okay? Like, we're not going to attack you. You don't attack us. We're not going to fight your battles. Go do whatever you want, right? But Muhammad wasn't having that. Okay, go on. Yeah. So the way the story is documented is what caused Muhammad to go attack the third tribe isn't even feared treachery or that they were neutral. The story in Bukhari goes that Muhammad had put down his arms but then Gabriel came to him and then he said to Muhammad, why are you putting down your arms? The angels still are fighting. And then he pointed to go towards the Banu Koreza Jews. Oh. And that's why Muhammad went to them. And this one has a really bad ending that as for the siege, Muhammad took all the men that the, the, the criteria was any Wait, male is there any other reason? I think there was some stories behind, like, because Muhammad did, wasn't deciding. He, he appointed somebody to make the judgment, didn't he? Yeah, Saad bin Ma, the detail is like, after they surrendered, they asked, like, what happens according to, 
to your law, right? For right. treasury. And then Saad was, we used to be a Jew, but was a Muslim now. So yeah. he just Which said Muhammad that. Loved. Yeah. Muhammad loved every fucking Jew that yeah. became a Muslim. Muhammad, like, because they were so rare, he would, those were his favorite, the Jews that turned Muslim. But go on. Actually, yeah. what's interesting is we were talking about Hadith earlier and uh, uh, the, the people who were actually tasked with um, coll- collecting and compiling the Hadith initially uh, were the Jews of Kufa. I mean, they were the original, uh, the converted Jews, people converted from Judaism because they had the history of the Talmud and the collection yeah. that they'd done the same thing in Judaism. So that's how a lot of the sort of Jewish customs ended up in Islamic Hadith, including stoning for adultery, which they and, uh, you know, circumcision and all of this other stuff. It's yeah. kind of interesting. And yeah, well, I, I know that we're, uh, the time's running, so let's try and wrap but, up in about but just, I know you said, so let's wrap up, but the, the, uh, the, the war ended, this is after the war? This is after the third yeah, war? So, okay. Yeah, so the, the battle of French had finished, Muslims were laying down their arms, right. everything was fine, until Gabriel came and told Muhammad to go. Right. So Muhammad goes, and then they're surrendered, and the judgment is passed, and every male that was old enough to have pubic hair was beheaded right. in the city, in the central market of Medina. This is mentioned in great detail in Ibn Ashaq, Sirah, in Ibn Qasir, Tabari. Many hadith mention it. So this is 300 in Jews, right? No, no, no. The, the, number, the number minimum 400 and upwards all the way. Ibn Qasir puts it at 900. All right, let's say 400. So in one day, 400 innocent men that were Jews as they were spared if they didn't have any pubic hair, but anybody with pubic, like they basically pulled out their pants, pulled down their pants to check, right? And anybody that had pubic hair was executed in the city for for being for, a Jew. Well, they they and they were considered to be treasonous. They treasonous. said that they were treasonous. Although so they didn't do anything. They didn't do anything. They, yeah, but but the thing is that the charge for them was apparently treason. So from mm-hmm. their point of view, that wasn't a. They weren't technically innocent from the point of view of the of this Muhammad. This is one of the most yeah. damning parts, right? Like this is like this. This is a huge part of the stories that is un- You know, mm-hmm. I don't understand. How but also, Tom Holland is also. I think he said that there's no evidence of this and in, in non-Muslim sources. But that, right. that's no, no. But none of this are Ali. The whole point. Oh my this- God! I'm denying another Jewish massacre. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, no, no, I'm not denying it. I I think it's true. But no, the thing the- is. It, no, uh, we don't know if it's true or not. The point is, this is part of the Islamic canon, right? Yeah. The point exactly. is that this is this is part of the Islamic canon, and whether it happened or not, this is their religion. This is the authentic part of the hadith, right? Yeah. So the part of the canon is. of Islam is that, and again, what is the source for this? Just for the people that are listening to this, like, no, you're just making Everything. this shit up. It's, it's it's literally everywhere. Like right. Ibn Qasir, Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Isham. Uh, Tabari, these are the the, the Sirahs, then there's Bukhari, as I mentioned, if it, right. Ibn Abu Dawud, so, Nasai. And the children and women the were sold as slaves, right? So ev- yes. everybody, every Jew that was not executed by this point, like the children didn't go like, okay, you're free, you can go now. No, they were slaves. The children were slaves and the women were became slaves as well, right? Yeah. And they were allegedly, there are some sources that say that some of the women and kids were sold to get more weapons. Wow. Yeah. So, Muhammad, just, just, to, just to repeat this, Muhammad killed 
at least 400 Jews, according to Islam, and took their children and sold them and took their money from selling ch children to buy weapons. Okay? Correct. And not only that, but remember, uh, Armin, we talked previously about Surah 4, verse 24, that says, and all married women are forbidden to you except those you get in captives of war. That was actually revealed at this time, too, because right. a lot of the soldiers, a lot of Muhammad's uh, companions, they were having, he had told them that this was booty for you. This was okay. Their widows right. are okay. And the ones that were captured, that their wives are okay, too. But they were having trouble uh, with the, like you know we can't this, have this sex so with these women because they're already because they're already married, married. Uh, yeah and then and then the verse came down that said no you can even yeah. the ones that are married you can just mm -hmm. remember right. Muslims keep telling you that before Muhammad it was the age of uh, ignorance jahiliyat jahiliyat and but remember a lot of things Muhammad did Muslims were like is this is this okay like is it was exactly the opposite. Like the the standard the standards they had before Muhammad were were higher in many aspects, not in all aspects, but in many aspects it was better better than Muhammad. So people were like, the, the having you know having grabbing other people's wives and turning them to slaves and raping them apparently was not okay before Muhammad, right? And Muhammad, mm. they, Muhammad had to tell them, no, that this is okay. And this is not Hadith, okay? This is Quran. This is the verse. I mean, a lot of, a lot of non-Muslims are shocked by the Quranic verse that says that you could, you should beat your wife as they should be. But I'm surprised why this verse is not getting more attention. This is a verse that says you can't have sex with a married woman unless you capture them in fuck, in war against, against enemies of Allah. This is in the Quran. This is not Hadith for the few French Quranists out there that says Hadith is not reliable. Okay, but go on. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's still a lot to cover, but we'll just quickly go through. Yeah. Um, so after this, we'll jump to the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, which was, so one day Muhammad just had a dream that he wants, he's doing pilgrimage in Mecca. So he's just like, all right, guys, let's pack up and let's go. Unannounced, just tries to go. Meccan's like, yo, what are you doing, man? Like, you, you didn't allow you to come to our city like that. So they sign a treaty saying that there's 10 years of truce. And then it says that <laughs> if a Meccan, if a Meccan person goes to Medina, he will be sent back to Mecca. But if a Medina person comes to Mecca, he won't be sent back. Some Muslims were like, yo, this treaty isn't the best thing that's happened to us, right? But Muhammad's like, you know, it's fine. And then the, the surah was revealed. Yeah, it's in the surah. I think surah Fat was revealed that uh, this is a very Muhammad should have come out and victory. say, you know what? I make the best deals. Nobody makes better deals than I do. <laughs> so, so fast forward, right fast on. forward. They went. Muhammad wanted something to do, you know, because I mean, he didn't want to go back empty-handed, and he needed some booty. So he was informed that the Jews who he had expelled at Khaybar were planning an attack against him. Right. So what did he do? He amassed an army went there and surprise attacked them at dawn. They were taken by surprise. They had, they were unprepared. Eventually the Muslims won and Muhammad, uh, the, uh, tortured the leader of the first tribe he had expelled from Medina. Tortured uh, how? He lit a fire on his chest right. and told him to tell him where his treasure was. And after the guy told him, eventually he killed him, beheaded him. Then that same very day, he took his daughter, 
unknowingly gave her away as a slave to one of his random companions. The daughter's name was Safiya bint Huey. Okay. Yeah. And then some other companions like Muhammad, what are you doing? That's the chief's daughter. So mom's like, wait, what? So then mom's like, yo, I want that girl back. And the guy's like, but it's, she's mine. So Muhammad then traded that girl back for himself by exchanging seven slaves. So he. But wait, why, why, why? Because he wanted to have the chief's daughter. Yeah. Why and is, then is that more valuable uh, to them? Okay. Political. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then. The same day he tortured her dad and killed her husband and literally all her tribe, mm. he married the woman. Married, That's- married in quotation marks, okay? Guys, whenever you hear married in Islam, you have to r- remove that word and replace it with raped, okay? Because the other so- when you say you're marrying somebody, it's not like you're marrying them and they have a say in this, right? No. You're basically raping them. Every time you hear the word somebody married somebody in Islamic stories, just remember that's basically well, raping. Particularly if they're underage or prisoners of war. If they're prisoners yeah. of war, the whole no, concept no, no, no. Everybody, just- because nobody, you know, if if Muhammad, if Muhammad wanted to marry you and your father and and you're the father, there's you're not part of the discussion. Right? You don't have much of a, like, No, but I mean, like in the terms of Khadija, obviously that no, was that a, was before a, Islam. Okay, I'm talking yeah, about yeah. after Islam. Okay, so oh, okay. if if somebody comes to me and wants to marry my daughter, this is negotiation between me and him. I, I'm the father, so the property is mine, and then after I'm selling my property to you as the husband. There is nowhere in this conversation that the daughter gets involved to see what she wants. So uh-huh. ma- it's not marriage; it's rape. So, but 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 what Abdullah is trying to say is that this woman was raped by the killer of his father on the day. That the killer killed his father. So Muhammad killed this this woman's father and raped her on this very same fucking day. Imagine being her. What was her name? What was her name? Safia Safia bint Hoy. That was oh yeah. Safia bint. Okay. Imagine being her. Imagine being raped by the person that just yeah. just killed your father. Yeah. Right. I mean. Anyway, so we'll quickly jump forward that. Uh, it was at Khaybar when Muhammad and his companions were sitting and they were served a goat that had been poisoned by a Jew lady. Now, Muhammad's companion took a bite of it and his color started changing and he died, right? And then Muhammad had had the food in his mouth, but he didn't swallow it, but he still got some effects of the poison. He spat it out. He survived. Yeah. Now, here's the funny thing. Muhammad said that this food spoke to him to tell him that it was poisoned. And I'm like... Why didn't it tell you earlier so that you could have saved your companion's life? And it was pretty obvious that he'd seen his companion first dying, therefore he spit it out. Um, and then Ibn Kasir Kas- yeah. Ibn- brings a very bizarre story in his Sira where it uh, that Muhammad is sitting on his donkey and he's literally talking full-on conversation with a donkey. But then some <laughs> scholars say that that story is not authentic, but I mean, that still being there in Ibn Qasir's work is still quite telling, like the, the mindset of the scholarship, right? And how gullible they are. Right. Uh, anyways, uh, long story short, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah uh, was broken. It seemed like it was the Meccans who broke it, but uh, Muhammad had already violated the treaty twice before that uh, by allowing, accepting women from Mecca and keeping them 
while the treaty said you had to send them back. And the, it's literally in the Quran in uh, Surah 60, verse 10. That was one violation that and a few Muslims who were living by the coast were continuously raiding the caravans. And the Meccans still wanted peace. They still didn't do anything about those two things. But then there were two tribes. One was the ally of Muslims. One was the ally of the Meccans. The treaty said that even the allies should not attack each other because they'll still be considered as an act of war. What had happened was before these two tribes had allied themselves with the Muslims or the Meccans, they were already fighting with each other. So tribe A, that is the one who allied with the Muslims, had killed a few people from tribe B. After killing them, then they become allies of Muslims and the non-Muslims. Then tribe B is like, we want revenge. And then they just went and attacked the allies of the Muslims. And the Muslims thought that, oh, this is a breach of treaty. And then Muhammad is like, okay, that's it. And now I'm going to go conquer Mecca. Uh, Peaceful. This is a favorite story of Muhammad. Because they say that the story is that Muhammad captured Mecca without a single drop of blood. That's the, what Muhammad's tell. Muslims tell. Yeah. So it's now, definitely not a single drop of blood. We'll see. So now, technically, that sentence is right. <laughs> it was many, many drops. Yeah. <laughs> now, interestingly, when Muhammad came with his army and he was encamped outside Mecca, right. Abu Sufyan went and talked to him. And this is where it's in Ibn Saqsira, where Muhammad and his companions literally threatened him with that saying, Abu Sufyan, you either accept Islam or we're going to chop your head off. And the guy said, yeah, I'm a Muslim now. <laughs> and that's how, and then he said, okay, I'll tell my people not to fight you guys and stuff. And then he let them in. There were skirmishes on the outskirts of the city. There was battles. Like right. a few, few people died. When Muhammad got to Mecca, Muslims say that everybody was forgiven. No, everybody wasn't forgiven. There were a few slave girls, uh, I think, Sada. Poets, yeah, they were literally just killed because they made poetry in Mecca, like years, years ago about Muhammad. And Muhammad did not forget. He had a list, didn't he? Yeah, he did not forget. And then another guy named Al-Hawaris was also killed for the same reason, for insulting Muhammad way back in uh, 10 years ago or something. And then one of the scribes of Muhammad, Abdullah bin Abishar, who was an early convert to Islam, immigrated to Medina. He has suggested verses to Muhammad that Muhammad accepted into Islam. And then he's like, dude, this guy's a false prophet. He left Islam and came back to Mecca. Muhammad found him in Mecca and had ordered his persecution. I believe he was a stepbrother of Usman. And the guy was standing, awaiting persecution in front of Muhammad when Usman came and pleaded for him. And Muhammad just stayed silent. And then uh, he said, okay, it's okay. Osman, Osman is, was the richest Muslim at that time, right? So yeah. Muhammad could not... Yeah. <laughs> what? So Muhammad didn't want to displease him by killing his stepbrother, yeah, yeah. right? You, you can't, yeah, you can't kill your patrons. Um, yes. But, but, uh, by the way, now, but, 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 but how many people? How many people? It was seven people that it was on his kill list, right? Seven? Yeah. 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 At least three, I think. So this goes against... And this, where's the source for this? Uh, it's in Ibn Ishaq Sira and in Tabari is Sira as well. So, so for every Muslim that says that Makkah was captured without a drop of blood, this is for a horseshit. Muhammad specifically had a list of people that he did not want to forgive. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so one I, point you 
Yeah, go ahead. Just quickly finishing off. One point you can raise is why didn't he kill more people? Firstly, the, the Quran had already clearly said that fighting in the sacred mosque is prohibited. Secondly, Muhammad was coming back to his home city, so he didn't want to make it like just full-on terrorism everywhere. And we didn't want to leave this image. And he's coming back to his hometown. So you can explain that in that sense that why didn't he go all all crazy like he did with the, the Kareza Jews. Yeah. Um, and just the last incident I want to touch upon is what Muhammad would do was the Kaaba that he destroyed in Yemen. So after he conquered this, Kaabas at that time were very common. There was a Kaaba called the Dul Khalasa and it was what? a house of idols. I didn't yeah. know this. Kaaba yeah, just means a cube. It's a cube. It's yeah. a building that's a cube. So. Oh, okay. In the deserts, yeah, they used to have... Well, wow, this a makes the Kaaba a lot less special then, right? Like it was just a thing to do. Right, okay. It also adds credence to the whole, uh, uh, you know, the Petra Negev right, desert right. story, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Is, they, they, these people were no threat to Muhammad. They didn't care. They're doing their own thing. Muhammad sent an army and told the people, kill and destroy everything and everyone there. Where? And the, the Dul Khalasa Kaaba in Yemen. Right. So the army of 150 men went there, killed and just butchered everything, destroyed the whole thing, came back to Muhammad, reported to him, and Muhammad praised them. Why and did he do that? Because he, it was just another idol house, and he yeah. wanted to destroy it. And because yeah. also, he didn't want competition for his Kaaba in Mecca. Because Yemen is not a Slay all the polytheists. Slay the polytheists wherever you see them. These are idolaters. Idolaters. So the thing is, even though the people of the book, the Jews and Christians and everything, are given some sympathy selectively at some periods of time throughout the prophets, uh, throughout Muhammad's lifetime, the uh, the polytheists and the idolaters are not given a break. They're not really, except for the satanic verses, which were later retracted like a foreskin. So... (laughs) We need to go through a Q&A very fast as well, guys. Okay, I can do it quickly. So, you want to do, I, uh, before we go to the Q&A quickly, uh, the, the theory of, uh, the, there's this theory, like you, you were talking initially about potentially whether you had seizures, temporal lobe epilepsy. Is that something you want to get in? Should we continue this later on? Because I also want to eventually talk about like well, what happened afterwards, all the other dynasties, uh, Maya dynasties. Well, no, we're going to have it. We're going to have, if we, we can have an episode on the, the, the four Khalifas after Muhammad, right? right. And then we no, can... I think we could do all the Rashidun and the uh, Abbasids and the... Uh, no, the Rashidun uh, deserve their, the their own episode. And the Umayyad deserve their own episode. And the Abbasids deserve their own episode, I think. <laughs> well, we should ask it's them. a lot of history, yeah. yeah. We have consent. It's a lot of history and a lot of reading. But, um, I mean, if, if you're talking about the seizure and the, the epilepsy thing, that would be a very interesting topic because the symptoms are so, so, so precise in the literature. It's, it's yeah, almost talked about this, actually. Yeah. Like, so, yeah, just look up temporal lobe epilepsy. I mean, that's something that a lot of non-Muslim historians, uh, they didn't say temporal lobe epilepsy, but they thought that uh, he did, Muhammad did suffer from epilepsy. And it's said about a lot of other previous religious figures as well. Yeah, you know, yeah, who tend to have this stuff. Yeah, but, I, 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 but we're, not, we're not professional doctors, so we can't yeah. tell, I guess. We can't for, that, that that we need a, for that, we need Sam Harris, neuroscientist. I don't know if you could do that across centuries for somebody. But yeah, yeah. Well, you can make a relatively good case or a tenable diagnosis. Right. It's, 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 it's a hypothesis, not a theory. 
So we will. Sam is going to be for listeners listening to this. Sam is going to be on the podcast next week. So uh, right, you know, so that's the, you're warming up the seat. Oh, we for should him. we should get our patrons to send us questions for Sam like ahead of time. Okay. We need to prepare. Okay, so, for, yeah, yeah. But but let's we'll go to Q&A, Q&A. Let's wrap up. Yeah, let's wrap up. We're just going to go through our, through our patron questions. Um, I think there were more listeners in this time than there were questioners. I think this was yeah, this was a lot of fun. Yeah. So I shall start from the beginning. Lots of blah blah. blah. Um, uh, Theo Maki is asking what happened between the events and the biography. Well, okay, so I guess that was the we whole episode it. that we yeah, covered. We <laughs> yeah. Um, and then reason on faith. Uh, I've heard from carbon dating experts that we can. This is about the the uh, manuscript um, that whether the Quran was revealed was uh, existed before Muhammad's time. I've heard from carbon dating ex- experts that we can get those weird results because a paper used. Or the the paper used or the parchments used may have existed decades earlier, and it was reused post Muhammad. Um, yeah, that's 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 one of the doubts. But overall, generally, uh, most of the scholars who've looked at this, uh, the consensus after that discovery is that um, the Quran most likely came from Muhammad, and he he likely wrote uh, most, if not all of it. And that's generally what the consensus is, and, and it's carbon dating sort of backs that up mm. and both places it in his lifetime. Jim is saying, why didn't God appoint someone who could write? Is a perfect man someone who cannot write? Uh, this is mi- about the, to make the it a idea miracle. that... So the idea is that to to show that this is a miracle because somebody that couldn't write brought the Quran, but as we pointed out that uh, you didn't need to be able. It's not a. It's the dumbest miracle according to Muslims. It's the greatest miracle. It's greater than Moses split. You know, splitting the sea. But it's the dumbest one because he didn't write shit. He basically, according to Islam itself, he told other people to write it for him. And in fact, what he did was memorize uh, verses, which was something very according to Islam itself. Which was something very common back then. People remember memorized poetry and you know oral this this oral tradition of memorizing large parts of um, you know po- lo- huge poems and stuff was was a common skill. So the any the thing that he used was very common at that time. So I really don't understand. Nobody has yet been able to explain to me how is this a miracle. But the point of him not being able to read and write, uh, Jim, is for this to be a miracle. But it fails to be so. Go on. Yeah, there's also another idea that I mean, the the word uh, "ummi" actually translates unlettered, and unlettered. There are some people uh, who say that um, uh, the reason he was referred to as "ummi" was not that unlettered was not because he couldn't read or write, or that he was illiterate, but because he wasn't actually a those person fring- of the book. Those are very he fringe, hadn't been delivered. Those are fringe arguments. Yeah, Most that, that's a, very fringe. Yeah, yeah, this one isn't. It, it isn't totally fringe, but it's definitely a lot less common. Right. So, mm. um, anyway, uh, let's move on. Next question. Um, didn't his un- Abu Talib did he, didn't his uncle get condemned to hell for not saying shahadat? Oh, so this is very yeah. important because his greatest supporter, uh, Muhammad's uncle, which basically protected him from getting killed all the all the time in Mecca, he never. Abu Talib. T- yeah. I, I would tell him he never turned into a Muslim. He never said the shahadat. He protected that's, him that's because he Sunni. loved him. That's a Sunni belief. Right. For Shia, for the Shias, he did eventually right. convert him to Shia. Yeah. So, so he went to hell, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. We're always in hellfire, right? Am I right? Or? 
I think he was given to slippers of water or something like that. One part of his body was given some relief right. from the hellfire. So uh, he's falling in, on from that. He's in hell, but he's given <laughs> slippers of something. So he's being he. he so he's just getting a, a little bit of an advantage by having some protection from hellfire, right? That's basic. But yeah. he, but he's still yeah. in hell. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, I think even so, Muhammad said his parents are both in hell too, if I remember correctly. Okay. Oh, Great. This Jesus. is what you get for helping Muhammad. All right. Yeah. Next. Yeah. James is asking, why did early Muslims pray towards Jerusalem? I think we covered that after. Yeah. After he asked that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, then and later they switched. Okay, so uh, had Abdullah. Okay, so specialist is asking had Abdullah read a quote. Uh, you know, he's asking about you, Abdullah, not the not mm-hmm. Muhammad's dad. He's saying had has Abdullah read the Hidden Origins of Islam or any work by uh, Gerd Puin, Christoph Luxemburg, or Volker Pop. I haven't finished reading their books, but I have looked into their. I watched a couple of videos uh, from Jared Poin, especially there's a theory about the Quran having Syriac words and stuff. And uh, like, I haven't re- read their whole works, so, but I've read uh, pieces of it in the book uh, Which Quran by Ibn Warak. It's like a collection of a few books, a few scholarly articles. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, but yeah, just, he just, uh, just Ibn Warak actually mentioned it at the event that we did together in New York as well, the, uh, the ex-Muslims in North America event. Uh, Christoph Luxemburg, just to give an idea, Christoph Luxemburg is the, the, the guy who actually took uh, Quranic, uh, the, the, the language and the script, and, and looked at the Syro-Aramaic um, roots of the word and looked at it from that kind of etymological uh, viewpoint and um, came up with a lot of ideas like, you know, the, the, the word uh, or huri, or uh, I, I don't think it was a word huri exactly, but that the virgins that are described in heaven are actually right. right? And, but that's and bullshit, so th- isn't it? Yeah, well, there's a lot of skepticism about it because those virgins are also supposed to have wide eyes. Which I guess kind of sucks for people with Asian fetishes. But anyway, <laughs> uh, no, the, no, uh, it's, it's still Asian fetish. It's just anime. Yeah, yeah. But so, Street so when when you go to heaven, you get anime girls, basically. Right, right. Um, so they had. Uh, yeah. But, so, but by the way, Abdullah, Abdullah being the name of the Muhammad uh, Muhammad's father that that you mentioned, it, I just wanted to mention that this is so Abdullah means the slave, slave of God. Of- and Allah, the fact that Allah was a God before Muhammad was born is, is something that we didn't touch on. Like Allah was not, was, was a name of a God before Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Well, even Christian Arabs, many Christian Arabs refer to God as Allah. Like people, yeah. it's just like the Arab wasn't word for God. Wasn't he a specific, yeah. like I hear, I haven't looked into this, uh, wasn't he a specific moon God? Is that all bullshit or is that real? I haven't looked I, into that. From what I remember, that theory has been debunked okay and it's 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 very it's a very fringe case to make yeah all right okay okay let's go next so yeah and and uh, one of the idol gods was also named Allah, right so yeah right. it's it's kind of a common kind of thing okay so i yeah i don't think we have a whole bunch of there's one there's some questions. at the end oh so yeah uh, uh actually yeah theomaki is also saying uh, interesting comment. Islam is based on Judeo-Christian values. That fact doesn't care about Ben Shapiro's feelings. Right. <laughs> so it's true. Yeah, it's, um, it's not. It's not America that's based on Judeo-Christian values. It's Islam. Everyone, so just remember that. Islam is the original Jewish conspiracy. Shahruz, yeah. I think he's Persian based on his name. Shahruz. Uh, uh, are there stories that are not in Ibn, um, Ibn Isham edited Sirah that are 
in other biographies that Muslims commonly believe to be true? Yeah, there there are books written by Ibn Saad and Waqidi. Those are like large volumes and uh, a few Maghazi books, the war books. They, they, some of them predate the syrup material by like maybe a decade or so. It's the same time frame. Right. Uh, but yeah, there are, there are more stories like uh, in other books. Yeah. And he, uh, What's a famous story that's not in the original Ibn Hisham biography? Hmm. Or even in Tabari, do you know? Oh, can you think of one? Or? I think you referred yeah. to some of them when you were talking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, it's, so one thing comes to my mind where the prophet was sitting with a guy and this guy said that I am, uh, my sexual power is pretty low. So then the prophet prayed on a piece of meat, gave it to him and he ate and then he was <laughs> much. And that's something that's popped oh, into my head. I, I could have made that up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Theo, Theo like he's asking, what what other cubes are there aside from Mecca and the Yemens? Well, I mean, I think he's saying were there because there are not any cubes there anymore. And there was one more, and there's a hadith uh, with the wording that as long as the the buttocks of the women keep going around a certain Kaaba, uh, the day of Qiyamah will not come. Something like that. It was in one of the six. So as long as there's women circling the Kaaba, or the, at least specifically the asses of women circling yeah. the Kaaba, yeah. uh, you're never going to have the Day of Judgment? Yeah, it was something along those lines, what? but I don't yeah, remember right. exactly. Okay. Yeah. I don't know, man. Okay, so What books do you recommend to read? Uh, in general? On this topic. On this topic, I mean, this... Uh, just to get the most purest, rawest form of his biography, just read Ibn Ishaq Sira. It's been translated into uh, English. Uh, another very, way, Ibn Ishaq or Ibn, Ibn Hisham? That, yeah, the the way Ibn that's Shah. written is hard to go through, though, isn't it? Like the way that you no, no, no. If if you find that hard, I mean, you can try Ibn I mean, Ishaq because it, it draws material. Yeah. There was one book I read that basically took those authentic sources and made it like basically put it in a more story format rather than like like a well i i think tabari is pretty easy to read that's the one that yeah. i was screen sharing and i completely fucked up the display it's pretty easy to read and it's uh mm-hmm. it's actually quite well regarded and it, it actually draws from ibn ishaq uh the original one that was that was uh, edited by ibn Hisham. so the, sometimes you get stuff that's even all right um, next question is it possible that violent narratives could possibly be meant to parallel parallel the violent narratives of moses Joshua and David. Uh, well, I don't know. That I would be very so. speculative. That's a stretch. That's a stretch. There's another question we missed earlier. It was uh, supernatural elements aside. What do you think we can learn out of these narratives about the historical Muhammad? Um, I, I think you can learn a lot. I mean, just uh, it's supernatural. Apart from the supernatural thing, I think that historical, just the way that people thought then. Uh, the way that uh, people thought about morality, the way that people thought about interpersonal relationships, how about tribalism, <clears throat> just a lot of human nature, the parts of it that persist into us today, the parts of us that, that, that we have gotten rid of. You I know, think there are a lot of really interesting things. Study, know, any kind of study of history would you get. You know how you mentioned Salman Farsi, which uh, <coughs> gave Muhammad the recommendation to build those trenches and you know saved Muslims there? Uh, that just that's the only mention of a Persian in among Muslims, and he his story was he just came in and then le- then he completely disappeared. Like his there's not much about him at all, right? But that mention of him was enough for a lot of Iranians to come up with the conspiracy theory that 
Islam could have not been the successful unless it was an Iranian's invention. Unless it yeah. <laughs> so I think like it wasn't my, this whole th Islam thing was Salman Farsi's a genius invention and it had nothing to do with Muhammad and it was obviously something this big house. Yeah. So, but right. uh, yeah, so they, they tried to take credit for that, but, so, okay, so but uh, Mike is saying it, I was just a listener. Uh, no questions from this, from, from me this time. Thank you for this very interesting episode. Thank you. Oh, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Mars is saying, thank you. Mars. Oh, hi Mars. Mars is saying there is an alternative option to what? Malice Ruthven. I got something out of his book, but not as much as I would have. I actually haven't heard of that, so um, I'll look it up. Uh, have you heard There's, of him, Abdullah? No. Uh, is it about the book called Understanding Muhammad? Do you think there's a lack of literature on this, like uh, compared to the amount of analysis on the Bible? And Jesus' story. Do you think, um, like, from non-Muslim literature, yeah, objective, like from a non-Muslim scholar, non-Muslim scholars, is a very, yeah. you know, empty, yeah, yeah. So, so at, the, at this point, I want to recommend a book uh, really quickly, and that is, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about. We learned, I learned from this book and some of the other sources from this book, as I mentioned it before. Tom Holland in the Shadow of the Sword. I think that he's he's yeah. great. The reason that that book is so great is it talks about the rise of Islam in the context of the fall of the Roman and the Persian empires. Mm -hmm. um, so find the book I read. Sorry, I'm gonna find yeah, yeah. the book I read. So, so, so that that I think is an excellent. And the other thing is that you know how Armin is saying that, or I think one of the questions was that uh, isn't there any um, book that talks about this stuff objectively? Well, sorry, the problem is anybody who tries to do it, the the dialogue around the history of Islam. Uh, an objective sort of critical history of Islam is pretty much confined within academic circles, unfortunately, mm -hmm. because uh, the people who talk about it, they do it at great risk to their lives. They don't want the headache. So uh, someone like Tom Holland actually collected a lot of these, um, the ideas of these scholars and a lot of the work that's been done. And he tried to put it in his book and he got a lot of crap for it. He even made a documentary on it. Uh, and he got a lot of crap for it. Two, so two, two last questions. Theomachy yeah. is saying, "What's your opinion on mythics that uh, mythics that uh, who say who want to say Muhammad didn't exist, just like uh, didn't exist, just like how other uh, no, not mythics, mythicists, mythicists want to say that Jesus didn't exist." Uh, so what basically the question is, what, 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 how do you respond to people say that say Muhammad did not exist? I think the evidence for his existence in some way is pretty overwhelming. Like, you can't say he didn't exist. Um, I mean, it's possible, but you can, but say you can challenge. Yeah, you, yeah, you can challenge the idea that the Muhammad we know of didn't exist. But that's there was a for God. sure. Yeah, yeah. but I'm... I am of the opinion that he for sure existed, maybe not in the not as the person we came to know through the hadith and the Sira literature. That's the same thing yeah. with Jesus, though, right? Like most scholars yeah. agree that he must he probably was real, but mo most of what we know about him, uh, most of what is said to know we know about him is probably not accurate. Well, mm. as as early as six thirty six, I think there's a there's some scant mentioned there were uh, Roman um, uh, Romans in Syria. Uh, during the Battle of Yarmouk, who said that uh, they met, uh, they battled with the Arabs of Muhammad. So there is mm. some mention, um, but it's very, very scant. So it, it, Jesus and Muhammad both most likely existed. I think that's a consensus right now, but um, uh, they're just not the people who yes. they have been made out to be. I would even say a, a, a higher percentage, probably a higher percentage of the stories about Muhammad 
was based on something real than Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like for Jesus is, I think is don't like is way way more unknown what really happened or who what he really yeah. said. Muhammad, uh, I mean, based yeah, on the uh, inconveniences of the stories, like a lot of we have a lot of stories that Muhammad, like it would have been more convenient if the story was a different way. Anyways, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, yeah, Abdullah, yeah, Abdullah, uh, no, just one, Abdullah, what got you interested on studying Muhammad's biography? Well, obviously, yeah, last, it, word. last word. Sorry, the question is what got me interested in talking about it? In studying, in studying, studying it. Biography. Um, well, I mean, uh, as an ex-Muslim, uh, it was always interesting uh, to see it from a flip side. Like, I was told these good things about Muhammad, you know, being this, being that, when I was a Muslim and the way I read it. I read it in a different light before. Now that I read it, it's crit- it's it helps you critically analyze the person. It helps you understand his thought processes. And it gives you a very in-depth look at how and why Islam is the way it is. And when you can understand how the source came up with these ideas, you can understand why we're having certain issues with Islam and its incompatibility with modern values. That's pretty interesting. And if you can understand the issue and the source better, then you can tackle the, the issue much better. Right. And and the thing is that this, the three of us here were Muslim at some point. And for us, it's very fascinating because when you, when you, your whole life, you've been lied to about something. And then when you see things differently, it becomes very fascinating to see how different everything is from a different perspective, from another perspective. Right. So when your whole world turns around, uh, and everything shatters. So naturally that becomes very interesting to you. Um, so Jim is uh, no more questions. Um, Jim is saying very good episode. Thanks for all the information. And specialist journalist is suggesting Islam, a very short introduction, um, as a book to read by Melis Ruthven. Ruthven. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, but this was great. Uh, is these are, you know, these are my favorite episodes. Some of my favorite episodes. This is this yeah, is my this favorite is, uh, topic to talk about. So it's great to yeah, have such too. a. And you you have so much. I don't know how you, how much how much do you read? You must be like reading all the time. I don't know. Like you have the wealth. Like you have a wealth of information. And you have know your sources. The amount of references. I mean, it's amazing. How how do you how do you manage to you know grab all that information? Well, thanks for the compliments. Um, I mean, if if you're interested in something and you have a passion for something, I think that's the main main thing. I don't honestly read that much. I mean, I I have my phone. I read on Kindle or maybe listen to books on Audible. Right. Uh, but yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> but not that much, honestly. But if you have a passion and if you're thinking about something, it is things stay in your mind longer, and, and I guess it helps with memory. I think too, you're, so. you're one of the most underrated ex-Muslims out there. Like you should become like a, you should become way more famous, and you should be like invited to events as a speaker. Uh, you should be like in debates. Would you be interested in all oh, of that? That already working on trying to get. Yeah. Um, uh, these guys, both of these Abdullahs, I think that they're really like you guys are the future of this entire thing. I think you're gonna need right. it. Thank you. Yeah, we uh, that, by the other Abdullah, I mean Abdullah Samir, right? Uh, the slaves of Allah, Abdullah. <laughs> it's so I, it's perfect that you both of your names is Abdullah. I, Abdullah it's, it's so, so ironic. Like, it's perfect. Last week we had Muhammad Sayyid on, so now we're you know talking about Muhammad and Abdullah and, and Ali, and it's just the whole. It's just so weird too. Right. 
uh, you know, have this conversation. And and the name of Muhammad's father and meaning the slave of Allah is just perfect. And with Mikey is saying, Abdullah, you're brilliant. This was uh, this was an experience. Uh, Shahruz is saying, uh, love you, Gandal. Abdullah, that was, uh, Mars is saying, Mars Chang is saying, Abdullah, that was great. Thanks for sharing your insights. We'd love to see you debate uh, and shred Reza Aslan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. Uh, but anyway, so we so kept much. you way over time. But <laughs> I mean, I, I enjoyed it, and my would, my battery is at three percent now. So right, right, okay. before you, before your battery dies, would you be interested in if me and Ali invite a Muslim that would debate you, and me and Ali don't say anything, we just moderate a debate between you and a Muslim? Would you be? Yeah, interested yeah, in yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> we we are kind of working on that. I'm I'm working. Mm-hmm. I'm, in, I'm in touch with some people trying to do it. Okay, okay. But they're, they they challenge me to a debate. Yeah. They always challenge online. They're like, okay, come and debate, and then they disappear i'm like email me he's like yeah i'm kind of busy right now except so i I, know they have nothing they have nothing i know they they, know it all right i don't know if you're a muslim and you're listening to this come make allah proud and (laughs) (laughs) all right okay yeah okay all right man abdullah we're gonna go you're gonna go get some sleep um i'm gonna go and i'm i'm very sleepy i'm gonna sleep like god did during the holocaust (laughs) <laughs> Abdullah, by the way, you. this is very late and he has to wake up really early. So thank you, thank you, thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. My pleasure. My All pleasure. Right. Thanks for having me. And uh, once again, it's 2%. So <laughs> right. now, uh, okay. I'll keep in touch. All right. All right, man. Take care. All right. Bye. Good night. Bye. Bye, everybody. The secular jihadists have been made possible thanks to the Illuminati and the covert support of Israel and the CIA. That's what we have been told, but we haven't received our checks yet. If you like what we do, please support us. Share the podcast with your friends. Write and tweet us with topic and guest suggestions. Or head over to secularjihadist.com and give a dollar or more for exclusive access to live video. Have your questions read and answered on the air and more. Till next time, may the flying spaghetti monster be with you.